This year, abortion rights continue to be restricted in many states, but many voters fought against that at the polls. You know, Republicans are looking at these election results and seeing voters appear to push back against abortion restrictions, often even in pretty red states. A look at the current state of reproductive rights in the U.S. coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. House voted on legislation 749 times this year, but passed just 27 bills that have become law. That makes this Congress the least productive in decades. And we'll take you to Boston's iconic North End bakeries that have changed or have been making cannolis for generations, and the flavors have shortchanged. Oreo, cappuccino, peanut butter. Would your ancestors turn up their nose at, like, cappuccino, cannolis? No, if they've seen how much money we were making, no way. It's 401. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Police in the Czech Republic warned the death toll could rise from a mass shooting today on the grounds of Charles University. They say a lone gunman, described as a student at the university in Prague, killed at least 15 people and injured 24 others. They say the assailant is dead, though it's unclear if he took his own life. The mass shooting is one of the deadliest in Europe since the 2015 terrorist attacks in Paris. Special Counsel Jack Smith is urging the U.S. Supreme Court to speed up a review of the election interference case against former President Donald Trump. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports prosecutors want to make sure the high court considers the issue before it finishes work this term. Prosecutors say the charges against Trump for allegedly attempting to overturn the last presidential election are of the utmost gravity. They say the Supreme Court needs to answer the key question of whether Trump enjoys absolute immunity from prosecution for actions he took while president. Trump's D.C. trial on the election interference case had been set to start in March, but the proceedings are on pause while courts consider his immunity argument. Trump's attorneys are asking the court to stay out of the legal debate over presidential immunity for now, calling the Justice Department's move a partisan rush to judgment. The DOJ says it wants the charges to be resolved promptly, whatever the result. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. The presidents of the U.S. and Mexico have agreed to more enforcement at their country's shared border, which is experiencing record migrant crossings. Texas Governor Greg Abbott recently signed into law expanded authorities for local police to arrest migrants suspected of crossing into the U.S. illegally. Abbott's also sending planes filled with migrants north to Democratic-led cities like Chicago. There, Congressman Jesus Garcia called for more federal intervention. This is a moment for executive action. I'm providing work permits for everyone in this country who is undocumented. That's Congressman Jesus Garcia speaking today. With Christmas just days away, the U.S. is in now in the thick of busy holiday travel. Member station WBEZ David Shaper has more. 39 million people are expected to fly this holiday season through January 2nd. That's an increase of 16% over last year, according to the group Airlines for America, which says its member airlines are prepared for the holiday rush. Airlines have been hiring aggressively to make sure they have enough pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, and other employees to meet the surge in holiday travel demand. They've also been adjusting their schedules and upgrading their technology to minimize flight delays and cancellations. Southwest, in particular, says it is much better prepared this year than last, when snowstorms followed by systems failures forced it to cancel nearly 17,000 flights, disrupting holiday travel for about 2 million people. For NPR News, I'm David Shaper in Chicago. The Dow is closed up 322 points from Washington. This 
is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Phil Lang is out with an early New Year's resolution to improve the transit system's bus service in 2024. WBUR's Rob Lane has more. The T's bus network underwent dramatic service cuts in late 2021. Bill Eng took over the top job at the agency earlier this year. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston that he'd like to restore the frequency of bus trips to about where they were before the pandemic. We're hiring. We're bringing and training new bus operators. We hope to be able to get back to similar levels of bus service next year. Back in 2021, the T cited a shortage of bus drivers as the impetus for service cuts. Eng says he's hopeful a planned redesign of bus routes in Greater Boston will also improve rider experience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane. Boston police are investigating vandalism to a nativity scene on the common. Police say vandals painted the words, Jesus was Palestinian, on the display. The graffiti was discovered this morning and removed. Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance is outlining its priorities for 2024. The fiscally conservative group is calling on the governor and legislature to go back to the drawing board and approve broad-based tax cuts, especially in light of the recently implemented millionaire surtax. The alliance's Paul Craney says the state has to remain economically competitive with other states. Their main competition is Florida and Hampshire, and they don't have a lot of these taxes. So we are competing with Florida and Hampshire, and that's what we have to always remember. That's our um, main opposition. A recent report by the tax policy nonprofit Tax Foundation finds Massachusetts has one of the worst business climates in the country. And former President Donald Trump has a 30-point lead over his fellow Republicans in New Hampshire, according to the latest UMass Lowell poll of Republican voters in the state. Trump has 52 percent support, while Nikki Haley in second has 22 percent. The poll shows Republican voters are divided on the Hamas-Israel war. Half said that they would back the nominee who calls for an immediate ceasefire, while the other half oppose it. The survey has a margin of error of plus or minus 5.4 percentage points. In the forecast, 34 degrees now. That's one big degree Celsius. Crystal clear skies overnight tonight. A cold breeze, about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine in the mid-30s again. Saturday, partly sunny, inching up to the mid-40s. Sunday, turning overcast. Could see the sun return, though, for Christmas Day on Monday. It's 4.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. When it comes to reproductive rights, 2023 is ending in much the same way it began, with confusion, lawsuits, and the stories of women in the midst of health crises unable to access abortion care because of a host of restrictive abortion laws across the country. The most recent example of this is Kate Cox, a 31-year-old mother of two in Texas. That state has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. At around 20 weeks, Cox learned the fetus she was carrying had trisomy 18, a condition where the fetus often dies before birth or just after. Cox was having complications with the pregnancy and continuing to carry the fetus could jeopardize her future fertility. Along with the Center for Reproductive Rights, Cox petitioned a Texas court for a medical exception for an abortion. The request was granted but later overturned when the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, appealed the ruling to the state Supreme Court. 
With time running out, Cox left Texas to seek an abortion in another state. While this past year saw a number of states move to protect abortion rights, Cox's story is far from unique. We're going to talk through the state of reproductive rights in this country with NPR national political correspondent Sarah McCammon and NPR health policy reporter Selena Simmons-Duffin. And Sarah, I want to start with you here and a big picture look. What has been happening this year in terms of the legal landscape? Well, you know, this was the first full year without Roe v. Wade after the Dobbs decision was issued in June of 2022. And since then, we've seen continued fights in state legislatures, in courtrooms, and at the ballot box over abortion rights and abortion policy. So currently, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which supports abortion rights, 14 states have total or near-total abortion bans, seven more prohibit abortion sometime before 18 weeks. And at the same time, 22 states and the District of Columbia have passed protections this year for abortion access. So there's really been an intensification of this divide we see where access depends on where you live. Also, more patients have been coming forward with stories about being turned away for emergency abortion care. Some of them are fighting back by filing lawsuits. And because of all this, we're seeing continued political fallout. Selena, to you, we know that people are still getting abortions, and there is data that suggests that the number of abortions actually rose in 2023. Explain how that can be the case when so many states have moved to limit access. Yeah, it's a really surprising finding. There are some theories as to why. So there may be an increased demand for abortion because of the economy. It could be because of reduced stigma as more people talk about their experiences with miscarriage and abortion. There's also way more information out there about what state laws are and different options for ending a pregnancy. So in states with bans, people who are seeking abortions and have the money to do this are just traveling to states where it's legal. One study found that birth rates increased in states with abortion bans since these new laws took effect. Selena, remind us who's being impacted the most by all of this. The real demographic differences in terms of access are financial. Who can afford to travel and who can't? And because of the racial wealth differentials in the U.S., that means low-income people of color are the most likely to be stuck. As an example, I spoke with Samantha Cassiano last spring. She didn't have the money to leave the state of Texas when she was pregnant with a fetus that had an encephaly. That's a condition where the brain and skull do not fully form. It's always fatal. She had to carry that pregnancy to term and give birth, and her baby died soon after that. She's now a plaintiff in a lawsuit arguing that the Texas abortion ban exception for medical reasons is too narrow and that that harmed her. Sarah, to you, what has the response to these stories been like? You know, it's important to understand that poll after poll suggests that most Americans support at least some legal access to abortion, particularly in situations like the ones we've been talking about where there's an emergency medical crisis and and abortion is the recommended standard of care. So abortion rights opponents who have supported these laws have had varying responses. You know, some have suggested that Kate Cox, who we heard about earlier, should carry the pregnancy to term and give birth regardless of how it might affect her future fertility. There are activists who are committed to that idea. But just as often, if not more often, I've heard Republican politicians downplay the idea that these laws are meant to prevent abortions in these cases. 
Earlier this year, I interviewed the architect of one of these laws, Texas Law SB8, which first took effect in September 2021. This is the one that allows civil lawsuits against anyone believed to have been involved in providing or helping someone get an illegal abortion, and it banned most abortions after about six weeks. So Jonathan Mitchell is a lawyer based in Austin who helped Republican lawmakers draft that legislation. I asked him about one specific case in Texas involving a woman named Anna Zargarian. She's one of the plaintiffs in the Center for Reproductive Rights case that we've been talking about. She had to fly to Colorado for an emergency abortion after her water broke prematurely. So I asked Jonathan Mitchell, the architect of this law, what he thought about that. But I do have a hard time understanding why SB8 would have stopped medically necessary abortions because the statute specifically allows them at any point in the pregnancy and it specifically exempts those abortions from any type of liability, civil or criminal. Does it concern you that this happens? It concerns me, yeah, because the statute was never intended to restrict access to medically necessary abortions. Only the purely elective abortions are unlawful under SB 8. But as we've heard, that is not what's happening. Many doctors have told both Selena and me that they don't feel like they're able to terminate pregnancies, even when there's an emergency and the standard of care established by the medical community would suggest that they should. They're worried about prosecution and and other repercussions. Selena, what else have you been hearing from doctors? Well, they really feel like they're in an impossible situation, especially when it comes to complications. So you have the threat of prosecution by the state if you provide an abortion that someone deems doesn't fall into the medical exception. You also have the threat of malpractice suits if you deny an abortion and someone gets really sick or dies as a result. Sarah, how has the overturning of Roe reshaped political conversations about abortion? Well, we've now had two elections in 2022 and 23 where voters have had a chance to weigh in since the Dobbs decision. Several states had ballot initiatives that spoke to questions related to abortion rights. And in every case where the question was put directly to voters, voters supported abortion rights in one way or another. So, Sarah, we have at this point been talking about elections in the past, but we are headed into a monumental election year in 2024. The primary is already underway. What are you seeing and hearing? You know, Republicans are looking at these election results and seeing voters appear to push back against abortion restrictions, often even in pretty red states. So this is a challenge for uh, particularly for Republican presidential hopefuls who are trying to navigate that. They're trying to appeal to a base that's strongly anti-abortion, but also they have to be mindful of what they're saying and, and not turn off general election voters. So we've seen them try to sort of walk that line. Several of them have told personal stories about experiences in their families with miscarriages or difficulty conceiving. What that seems like is an effort by the candidates to humanize themselves and seem more relatable on this issue. All of these candidates generally support the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The question is just how restrictive should laws be and should they support a national abortion ban if hypothetically, and it's very hypothetical, Republicans would ever get enough votes in Congress to do that. Selena, the other big thing that we're watching next year on this front is that the Supreme Court has agreed to take up another case about abortion, this one involving the abortion pill. Right. So this is a case brought by doctors who oppose abortion rights, who say the FDA didn't use the right procedures when it loosened access to a drug called mifepristone. 
And the shakiest part of this case is whether they have the right to sue. But even so, many academics believe that this impact of this decision could be really, really, really big. And that's because most of the abortions in the U.S. happen as medication abortions, which involve mifepristone and another drug called misoprostol. So a decision that limits access to mifepristone could have national impact, including for people living in New York and California and Colorado and other states that have positioned themselves as bastions of reproductive rights. We haven't heard oral arguments. We don't know what the justices are thinking, but this is the same court that overturned Roe v. Wade, and the decision could come just months before the election. So it's going to be a huge story in the coming year. NPR's Selena Semenstafen and Sarah McCammon, thanks to both of you. You're welcome. Thank you. The United States is known for its incredible collection of national parks, right? Crystal clear lakes, sprawling forests, and rolling mountains. But, you know, that's not everyone's cup of tea. So where do unimpressed visitors take their complaints? The Internet's a beautiful thing. It's a great place for people to complain about things that you wouldn't think needed to be complained about. Graham Avril is the National Parks columnist for Outside Magazine. And we thought it would be really funny to do a roundup of the best, worst reviews of national parks. His favorite comes from a Yelp reviewer about Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Absolutely horrible disappointment. There wasn't a single pickleball court in sight. A pickleball court? Really? (laughs) I mean, not something I would expect to see at a national park, but this reviewer kept pretty insistent. I hope my $30 entrance fee goes towards breaking ground on pickleball courts in the immediate future. Well, some of us here at NPR wanted to get in on the fun, so we asked our staff to read some of our favorite reviews. Uh Uh-huh. Like this one comes from an unhappy visitor to Yosemite National Park here in California. I need someone to explain to me the hype of this place. This place looks like any place with mountains and trees. Too many people, not enough stores, not enough places to buy food. Stay in the shopping mall! (laughs) All right, how about this review of Arches National Park in Utah? Having to pay a $2 timed entry to a national park is ridiculous, even if we have a yearly pass. Government sucks. Sounds like someone needs some nature therapy. All right, one more, Ari. This one is about Montana's Glacier National Park. Where are the glaciers? It was so disappointing to stand at lookouts with glaciers in the distance and signage showing glaciers 50 years ago near where I was standing. Ouch. All right, let's give the last line to a reviewer who was not a big fan of Yellowstone National Park. The whole place smelled like farts. Elsa, I'm making that my ringtone. (laughs) This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 20 minutes, Deion Sanders' year-end review at the University of Colorado, which is seeing mixed views on whether the season was indeed a success. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Have an artful holiday season with acclaimed exhibitions, a family film festival, art making, and more. Plan your visit at ICABoston.org. And Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at Globesanta.org.
Stocks grabbed a good amount of ground today. The Dow rose nearly nine-tenths of a percent. S&P rebounded from its worst day since September. It rose a full percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one and a quarter percent. Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts said today that it's extended its sponsorship deal with Blue Bikes through 2031. The bike share program debuted in 2011. That's when it was called Hubway. It's been known as Blue Bike since 2018 when Blue Cross began to sponsor the program. The new deal is with Boston, Brookline, Cambridge, Everett, and Somerville, which jointly own the bike share system. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to wbur.org. In the forecast, 34 degrees now in the Boston area. A cold night ahead, all the way down to 20 degrees. And tomorrow should be much like today with some sunshine. Temperatures only reaching the mid-30s. As of now, the holiday weekend is looking mixed. Saturday, partly sunny, rising to the mid-40s. Could have some clouds move in on Sunday. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from BritBox with Archie, based on the true story of Hollywood icon Cary Grant, a new original drama starring Jason Isaacs. Archie, now streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Workday, with AI at the core of its system, Workday is committed to delivering continuous innovation to help teams stay agile. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Nearly 20,000 Palestinians have died in Gaza since Israel began its offensive against Hamas. That's according to Gaza health officials. Israeli authorities say at least 129 Israeli hostages are still being held. And after more than two months, Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu faces growing domestic pressure to free those hostages and to defeat Hamas. Internationally, he faces pressure over high civilian casualties, with more countries supporting a ceasefire. To help us understand this political moment for Netanyahu, we are joined by Meirav Zanshine from Tel Aviv. She is the senior Israel analyst for the International Crisis Group. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Ari. Thanks. What is the mood like there after more than 10 weeks of war? It seems like people are angry at Netanyahu's leadership, but still overwhelmingly support the war. Is that right? That's about right. I mean, obviously, there's certain levels of fatigue. And we had a tragedy last Friday where three hostages who had managed to kind of break free and were waving some kind of white flag shirtless were shot and killed by IDF soldiers. Um, You know, that has really kind of taken the mood here from grief and trauma to grief, trauma and a lot of anger and impatience. When you say anger and impatience is the new ingredient, what are people angry about? What are they impatient for? Like, if you could sum it up, what's on the signs that people are marching with? They're angry that this government seems to have prioritized the kind of endless ground operation that doesn't seem to really be achieving successes that Israelis can feel, while at the same time having no real political horizon for the hostages. Also, the fact that this government, which they hold responsible for October 7th and is still in power, I think many Israelis feel like Netanyahu just doesn't really, you know, have a handle on what's happening and that he doesn't really have their interests in mind. 
And are Israelis also very concerned about the civilian death toll in Gaza? Or or is that a, a secondary concern as people are, you know, posting on social media, talking among their friends, campaigning for, for something to change? I mean, I have to be honest with you, it's not even a third or fourth um, kind of level for, for Israelis. The media doesn't really show what's happening in Gaza. Israelis are distrustful of reports, whether it's the number of casualties or how bad it is. I don't think Israelis really register it. And they're just completely caught up in their own in their own trauma. And, you know, even before October 7th, Israelis didn't really register Palestinians and their rights as, as an issue. So now, even though they're confronted with this war, they're still not it's not there. They're just not. Hmm. Israel's number one ally, the U.S., has been increasingly vocal about the need for Netanyahu's government to become more surgical in its tactics in Gaza, to reduce the number of civilian casualties. Do you see Israel changing its tactics in response to that pressure? I don't really see that. And I also find that the U.S. role here is to make this war a more humane war, which I think is an impossibility because of various factors, including that Gaza is, you know, a very overcrowded population, but also that the type of warfare that Israel is engaged in will will be very hard to not exact that price and also to actually achieve the goals that they have set, which is a very tall order. So you're saying the statements by Secretary of State Antony Blinken and others who seem to be saying, all right, Netanyahu, let's scale this back, are just kind of lip service? I think they're trying to put some kind of timeline on this. They're trying to say, Israel, you need to wrap this up. But also that doesn't really explain how Israel is supposed to kind of move on and achieve its goals, um, which wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily, you know, provide Israelis with the security that they're looking for. And I don't see on the ground that the U.S. pressure is really working. And we keep hearing from the Israeli leadership that they're going to continue for months. Right. This what we see de facto on the ground is some kind of occupation of Gaza, you know, military presence of some sort. It could be very similar to what we have in the West Bank, where there is a Palestinian authority. but Overall, Israel has all control. And I don't think that's something that the U.S., even though it says that it's not willing to have Israel do that, I don't I don't see the U.S. stopping Israel from doing that. Big picture, Israel's goal is to eradicate Hamas. You and other experts have warned that is unlikely to happen. And U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin has warned that Israel might be headed towards strategic defeat. What would that mean for Israelis and Palestinians? It would unfortunately mean a lot more death and destruction and generations of trauma, which we already have. I mean, Palestinian resistance to the Israeli occupation will continue, whether it's through Hamas or through other channels. I think the only way to what Israelis call eradicate Hamas is to think differently about how Palestinians and Israelis can live here and to understand that a military solution is just not going to work. It hasn't worked for so long. So it's very understandable that Israelis are angry, they're fearful. Uh, It was the worst attack Israelis have ever had to deal with. Uh, But there's also the context of what's been happening in this land for a long time. And Israelis are going to need to make some sacrifices in order for there to be a more desirable outcome. So they're going to have to think about ways to enter political engagements and frameworks with Palestinians through international mediation and not just a unilateral military situation that just doesn't solve anything. That's Merav Zonshine, senior Israel analyst for the International Crisis Group, speaking with us from Tel Aviv. Thank you so much. Thanks. Sorry. The U.S. House of Representatives made a lot of news this year. There was the contentious election of Speaker Kevin McCarthy, then his ouster, and then the three-week struggle to select a new speaker in Mike Johnson. There was also the expulsion of George Santos and now an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. 
But none of those fights were actually about making laws. Anybody sitting in the complex, if you want to come down to the floor and come explain to me one material, meaningful, significant thing the Republican majority has done besides, well, I guess it's not as bad as the Democrats. That was Representative Chip Roy of Texas on the House floor in November, expressing his frustration with how his Republican majority has governed. The House has voted 749 times this year, but it's passed only 27 bills that have become law. That makes this Congress the least productive in decades. Now, the Republican-led House does face President Biden and a Senate controlled by Democrats. The House has passed a lot of bills that are non-starters with Democrats, but that tally of 27 laws is far lower than other recent years, even those with divided government. In 2013, for example, when Republicans also controlled the House and Democrats also controlled the Senate and the presidency, the House passed 72 bills that became law. The laws that have been signed this year have largely been uncontroversial, like two laws to rename VA clinics or one to commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Marines. Or they've been absolutely essential, like the deal to lift the debt ceiling or resolutions to fund the government. This year, deep divisions have surfaced not only between the parties, but also among House Republicans. A few months ago, we asked Republican strategist Ron Bonjean about the removal of Speaker McCarthy led by a small group of hard-right lawmakers. I am really shocked on one hand, and on the other hand, it's rather surprising that he lasted this long, considering the current dynamics in the House. So will 2024 be any different when it comes to Congress and productivity? Well, it won't have any shortage of opportunities. Congress will enter 2024 with a big Ukraine and Israel aid package to consider tied to immigration policy changes. And then there's the continuing threat of a government shutdown with funding deadlines as early as January 19th. This is NPR News. And thanks for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about six minutes, Italian bakeries founded by immigrants to Boston's North End. They're still all on the family, and their cannolis are still king. That story is still to come. A cold night ahead all the way down to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine in the mid-30s again. Saturday should be partly sunny, inching up to the mid-40s, then cloudy skies for Sunday. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE, SIPC. Alice Walker's most famous novel is now a movie musical. The story is about going from being unseen to seen. We hear from the director and one of the stars. I feel sorry for you. That girl turned up the volume on Sophia. Who got encouragement from Oprah. Hearing it from her mouth told me, Danielle, make this your own. The Color Purple, tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The White House says it's working with Mexico to manage the unprecedented influx of migrants arriving at the southern border. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says President Biden spoke by phone to the Mexican president today. The two leaders agreed that additional enforcement actions are urgently needed so that key ports of entry can be reopened across our shared border. President Biden has asked Secretary of State Tony Blinken to meet with President Lopez Obrador and his team to discuss further actions that can be taken together to address current border challenges. Border security is expected to be a major issue for President Biden heading into the 2024 election. A top Ukrainian lawmaker says Ukraine's troops are running dangerously low on ammunition and are at risk of losing control of positions on the front line. NPR's Joanna Kikissis reports that Ukraine's two biggest allies, the U.S. and the European Union, failed to pass multi-billion dollar aid packages this month. Oleksandra Ustinova chairs the Ukrainian parliament's special commission on arms control. She told NPR that she's tried to convey to Washington and Brussels that the ammunition situation in Ukraine is critical and that it's only helping Russian President Vladimir Putin. If we don't have munition coming, Ukraine is going to lose. And the question is whether the EU, U.S. and other countries are okay with Ukraine losing. If they're okay, that there will be a big war in Europe because he's not going to stop in Ukraine. She said that Ukraine is also running low on munitions for air defense, which protect Ukrainian cities from Russian missile and drone attacks. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. At the close on Wall Street today, the Dow was up 322 points, the Nasdaq Composite up 185. This is NPR News. At least 15 people are dead after a gunman opened fire at a university in the Czech Republic today. Officials in Prague say the shooting was carried out by a student at Charles University. Police say the suspect died a short time later. An investigation is underway to determine a motive. Winter solstice, the longest night of the year, is tonight in the Northern Hemisphere, specifically at 1027 p.m. Eastern Time. And since before recorded history, it's traditionally meant a time of ritual for people all over the world. NPR's Deba Montesham has more. For some, the winter solstice might be a reason to go to bed early. But for many around the world, it calls for celebration. Over the centuries, Iranians have gathered with loved ones to celebrate Yalda, meaning birth or rebirth. It's a time to eat crimson fruits and read poetry throughout the night to welcome the sun. For the Native American Hopi tribe in the Southwest, the Soyal ceremony is about prayer and purification, when protective spirits called katsinas bring the sun back from its long slumber. And in China, Dongzhi signifies a turning point in the traditional Chinese calendar. Yin energy transitions to the positive energy of yang as the days become longer, and it's an excuse to eat delicious dumplings. Diba Motasham, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Harvard's President Claudine Gay is facing allegations of academic dishonesty. Many of Gay's critics are already unhappy over her response to pro-Palestinian protests on campus. They say she should resign. But as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, others say that's not the university's standard practice. 
Between 2017 and 2022, Harvard punished around two dozen students for academic misconduct each year, but none were expelled. University officials say Gay missed quotation marks or citations, what they call honest errors and not research misconduct. As an education lawyer, Ruth O'Mara Costello says Gay's case is not unusual. Harvard's had a number of faculty have this happen very publicly over the years. It does happen, um, and Harvard's general practice hasn't seemed to be that they end people's careers over it. U.S. House Republican leaders have said the university is applying a double standard to keep gay in her job. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The state is opening an evening and overnight shelter for families eligible for emergency assistance tomorrow. The shelter will be at the old courthouse on Cambridge Street in Cambridge. The building is nearly empty but still houses the Registry of Deeds. The space will be able to accommodate as many as 70 families with cots and with some limited amenities. New Englanders are familiar with traveling by car, boat or plane, but what about by train? Amtrak says travel on its northeast lines is higher than before the pandemic heading into the holiday. Jason Abrams is a spokesperson with Amtrak. He says with an uptick in travel around the holidays, it's important to give yourself more more time. Get to the station early. Get it this way you could be situated. You could find what you need. You can maybe get a cup of coffee. It's one less thing to stress about when you're traveling. Abram says ridership is about 15 percent higher than it was before the pandemic. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Empire Loan, with eight locations in New England recognizing the Lenny Zakem Fund, a public nonprofit charitable organization committed to advancing social, economic, and racial justice in Massachusetts. Since 1995, the fund has granted over $12 million to over 400 grassroots groups. The Lenny Zakem Fund.org. Clear tonight, chilly, about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, bright sunshine should be in the mid-30s once again. 34 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.36. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is NPR. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you've got a craving for some of the most authentic Italian food in Boston, you go to the North End. If it's got to be a piece of genuine Italian pastry, you get a cannoli and sink your teeth into all of its crunchy and creamy yumminess. That's a holy cannoli moment. Bobby Agrippino has introduced lots of people to the cannoli. He's lived in the North End his whole life and runs food tours here. There was about 12 pastry shops in the neighborhood at one time. You know, they all had the cannoli. Now it's down to just a handful. As part of WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, we went to find out what goes into making cannolis at the North End's most venerated bakeries. They're all run by the immigrant families that founded them. There's Modern Pastry on Hanover Street. It opened more than 90 years ago. And just down Hanover is Mike's Pastry. It's been serving up cannolis and other Italian pastries for 77 years. Around the corner on Salem Street, there's Bova's Bakery. The overnight baker is a fourth generation Bova. So I'm Jojo, my dad is Joe, his father was Big Joe, my cousin Joey, 
My cousin Joe. Jojo Bova's great-grandfather opened a bakery in 1926. The place is just the way Jojo remembers it as a kid more than 30 years ago. When I was four and five, I was rolling braids and, and hamburger buns out there on a milk crate. The place is decidedly not fancy. White paper signs written in black Sharpie identify the pastries in the display cases. A slice of Boston cream pie, chocolate brick, and anything else. I think that's everything. The shop is open 24 hours a day and doesn't quiet down until about 3 a.m. So Jojo Bova's got to keep the cases full. Every night he scans them to see what he needs to make that night. Almond biscotti, pistachio macaroons, probably some more raspberry arugula. And of course, cannolis. In the old days, Bovis filled the shells with only ricotta or Bavarian cream. These days, take your pick. Creme brulee, Nutella, salted caramel, Oreo, cappuccino, peanut butter, pistachio. Would your ancestors turn up their nose at like cappuccino cannolis? No. No, if they seen how much money we were making, no way. Tonight, Bob is going to make the cannoli that's the specialty of the house. He takes us into the kitchen. So this oven is original here. It's been here since uh, 1930, 1940. He heads to a wood baker's workbench in the way back. He unlocks his toolbox, pulls out just the right knife, and starts to make Florentine cannolis. The shells are like a Florentine cookie, all delicate and lacy. Bova cuts precise chunks of dough and pummels each one with his palm to make a patty. It's uh, basically almond brittle. It's sugar, honey, almonds, cream. And butter. How much butter is in each cannoli shell, roughly? I'm not sure I want to know, but tell me. It's a lot of butter. Yeah, it's, it's all butter. It is hard. Yeah, You're really yeah. pounding on it. Yeah. It may be tedious, but it's it's my life. It's a point of pride yeah. for you? Yeah. It's nice. He slides a tray of patties into a 400-degree oven. Watch out. It might be hot, okay? A few minutes later, the patties are just pliable enough to peel off the pan. Bova picks up an essential cannoli tool, a wooden peg that's about five or six inches long. He wraps a Florentine wafer around each peg to form the perfect shell. Bova fills the shells with sweet ricotta cheese, and then he'll do it all over again. It's hard to keep up with demand. I made 425 on Friday, and they were gone by Saturday night. I had to make another 300, and they sold by Sunday night. Customers appreciate that dedication and a good cannoli. Stevie Davis from Back Bay says she's sampled them all. I think Boba's is the best. The flavor, I don't know what it is, but it just tasted really good. I had the creme brulee one. I've had it multiple times now. and I've even been to Italy recently, and I still love Boba's. The connoisseurs have different cannoli criteria. Well, I'm going to talk to you from a non-Italian perspective. That's Suman Prasad of Boston, in line at the iconic Mike's Pastry. I think the cannoli itself, if it's light and flaky, that's a good cannoli to me. You know, I don't like it super, super hard and dense. Her friend Cheryl Confer of Rentham says she's 100% Italian and sets a high bar for cannolis. A cannoli must have a high percentage of fat. We say ricotta, but other people say ricotta. And the shell must be really hard and never ever soggy and therefore the cannoli must always be stuffed right in front of you and served immediately otherwise 
eh, we don't want it. <laughs> Mike's Pastry offers up 19 flavors. I'm going to order a pistachio cannoli. A clerk takes the order, then rushes to the back room where a worker squeezes thick filling into a shell and coats the ends with pistachio crumbles. Then the clerk scoots back to the customer to offer a final touch. What about some powdered sugar? Absolutely. My name is Angelo. I'm uh, the manager, the son of the owner at Mike's Pastry. Been here for over 40 years. Angelo Papa's stepfather was the late Mike Mercogliano, who founded the bakery. Mike's churns out 5,000 homemade cannoli shells a week. In the kitchen, men in baseball hats and women in hairnets work at a long table. Their aprons are white with flour dust. Uh, that's one person there, two, three, four, five, that are on the process of rolling out the dough. The dough's wrapped around wood pegs to form the shells, and then it's time to cook them. This would be the frying section. I just made that up. A baker drops a tray of 50 shells into the big fryer. Papa says he takes pride in doing things just as his stepdad did. If not the flair of the store or the personnel of the store, but the way we make the stuff. I can't say what makes mine special. I mean, I only do it the way Mike taught me how to do it. And if people buy it, great. If they like it, great. It seems to be working out for us, so I think we'll continue on. Music to the ears of cannoli lovers. Pistachio cannoli, all right. Let's do it. You'll find more stories about the neighborhoods, history, and culture of Boston, including where to find great food in WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. That's at WBUR.org slash Field Guide. Deion Sanders was the talk of college football this year as his Colorado Buffaloes started the season 3-0. and Oh, no, no, no. Do you believe in that? Huh? Who said I didn't believe oh, before? no, no, no. But Coach Prime's Colorado Buffaloes were soon humbled, ending the season losing six games in a row. One thing that I could say honestly and candidly, you better get me right now. This is the worst we're going to be. Despite the losing record, some are actually calling the season a success. Others say it was a complete failure. Well, Clinton Yates took some time to review Deion Sanders' first year. He's a columnist with ESPN's Anscape, formerly known as The Undefeated. Welcome. How are we doing today? Pretty good. So let me ask you, how would you assess Deion Sanders' first year in Boulder? Like, give me a letter grade and tell me why. The reason why I'd give it an A minus is as much about the geography and the experience as it is about the football. Most people who don't care about like the history of the game or aren't otherwise attracted to the Flatiron Mountains are not going to Boulder, Colorado for any reason whatsoever throughout <laughs> the course of the year. And, Ouch. you know, I mean, it sounds funny, but the truth is, is that when it comes to a sport like college football that gets so many eyeballs on it, the simple act of getting people to show up at all is the hardest part. I mean, but let's bear in mind that there were some Colorado legends who have given Coach Sanders a B- minus for this season. I mean, the team only won four games. So to the extent that there was success this season, how much of that perception has to do with just the amount of money or hype brought to the city of Boulder versus actual performance on the field? I would say a lot, and I don't think that there's anything wrong with that. When we're talking about institutions of higher learning, what's the real goal here? Sure, Heisman trophies are nice. 
sure, Pac-12, rest in peace, titles would be nice. <laughs> But in reality, I mean, the whole purpose of an academic institution, at least in my understanding, is to ameliorate the society around you and the community that you're within. I met one couple that literally went on their first anniversary to visit Boulder, wow. to watch a football game because they were Deion Sanders fans and they wanted to see the kids. Well, with respect to the people who were on the field, I know that Colorado was able to land a number of notable college players through the transfer portal. Deion Sanders was in the news earlier in the week for flipping more recruits. And I'm just curious, like, how have changes in the recruitment process helped Sanders, you think? They've helped him a lot in that these days you can make a team good immediately. As in, you can pluck guys from other teams who are not happy with their situations if they're not getting enough playing time or somebody who, for whatever reason, it didn't work out at one school. But I do think that if this were, say, 10 years ago, it would have been absurd to look at Dion and say that this was anything of a disappointment because it takes so long, typically, mm. in a traditional fashion mm. to build a culture, build a roster, yeah. and build a competitive team. Okay, you gave him an A-. minus. How do we get this team to an A in your view? Like, what are the biggest areas for improvement looking at next year? Well, I think a couple things are different. It's an A minus based on what the goals of this year were, which were to get people talking about Colorado. If they go out and win four more games next year, that's an F. I think <laughs> that the standards have changed drastically on this team. So winning games, absolutely important. Number two is... Yeah, <laughs> making sure that people still care. I don't mm. think that the attention is ever going to go away from Deion Sanders simply because of who he is. But once his son Shador ends up going to the pros uh -huh. and some of the other names like Travis Hunter that we've understood and known ever since they were back at Jackson State, the HBCU, once they go away, it's going to be a different look. And I think that we've still got one more season of the prime we know versus what we're going to see down the line. That is Clinton Yates, columnist for ESPN's Anscape and host of the podcast ESPN Daily. You are so fun. Thank you so much. No problem. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday afternoon. Experts say for people serving time in jail, in-person visits are helpful, especially during the holidays. But in many jails, the only option these days is a video call. That story coming up in just about 20 minutes on WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com. Today marks the December solstice, the day with the shortest amount of light and the longest amount of dark. Good news for lovers of light, though. As of tomorrow, the days will get longer and the nights will get shorter. Crystal clear skies tonight, a cold breeze, about 20 degrees. And for tomorrow, lots of sunshine, temperatures in the mid-30s. Saturday, partly sunny, inching to the mid-40s. Then Sunday should be cloudy, but sunshine should come back for Christmas Day Monday. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, with over 300 bulk items, including culinary spices, medicinal herbs, and household staples. CambridgeNaturals.com and Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. Supporting WBUR is about the good we do when we band together with a common goal. It's about giving to create more of the stories and conversations that make your world bigger. I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Now is the time to make your tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR, including a gift of cash, stock, or even your old car. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In Orange County, Florida, that's Orlando and the surrounding area, nearly 700 books have been removed from classroom libraries. Technically, these books are on standby, waiting to be reviewed for inappropriate sexual content by a media specialist. But as NPR's Andrew Limbong reports, it could take years before these books find themselves back in a classroom, if they find themselves back. It all started earlier this year with a small change in language in the Florida law books. Where To go back a bit, it's been the law since last year that all books in, quote, media centers in Florida schools have to be approved as age appropriate by a media specialist. But earlier this summer, some new language went into effect specifying that media centers includes classroom libraries. These personal collections that were just available for kids to read in their free time when they finish up work or to take home with them to read because they're not going to get to the school library, those all of a sudden became something that had to be approved by a certified media specialist. That's Stefana Farrell, the Director of Research and Insight for the Florida Freedom to Read Project, which is an advocacy group that pushes back against book challenges in public schools. They're also the group that requested the data of all these books being pulled from the Orange County Public School District. And digging into the titles, frequently banned books such as Maya Kobib's memoir Gender Queer and George M. Johnson's All Boys Aren't Blue and John Green's Looking for Alaska are on the list, but also books by Nicholas Sparks, Kurt Vonnegut, Ayn Rand, Jody Pico, John Milton, and Ovid are on this list. Here's Farrell again. What we have now is really big government writing this broad language that says any depiction or description of sexual conduct, regardless of its context or intent, as if it's not required in the standards, it's not allowed on the library shelf, whether it's classroom library or the media center. And that's what's happening right now. The Orange County Public School District didn't offer anyone up for an interview, but said that these rules were set in place by the Florida Department of Education, which hasn't responded for a request for comment yet. But at a recent school board meeting, Orange County Public School Board member Karen Castor-Dental noted that the media specialists are incentivized to be as careful as possible when reviewing these books. They are afraid of losing their license and their livelihood, so it's a great fear. They, we've seen the state come after individual teachers, even in Orange County. That's where the fear is. They're erring on the side of losing their license, and they're being so extreme that they're removing books like No David. No David is the Caldecott-winning picture book where in one scene, uh, little David runs down the street naked and you can see his butt. Anyway, at that board meeting, Superintendent Maria F. Vasquez noted that because there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books, the review process will take a while. Farrell says it could take years. Andrew Limbong and Pear News. They used to hate showers. Now they're taking over Sephora, America's teens and tweens have gotten really into skincare. Serums and lip oils are now on holiday wish lists of 15 and even 10-year-olds, leaving parents amused and confused. As NPR's Alina Selyuk reports. Okay, this isn't all of it. Can you see it? Anna Simone and her mom, Melanie, are showing Anna's skincare collection over Zoom. I don't know, a couple dozen things there? At least. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Anna is 11 from Savannah, Georgia, spinning a carousel of sunscreens, highlighters, and drops that make your skin look dewy. It's pretty clear the two of us adults are out of our depth. The only acid I really use are the like hyaluronic acid and the niacinamide one. Niacin what? Okay, it just makes my skin soft, if I'm being honest with you. Anna is part of Generation Z, loosely from tweens to early 20s. Beauty giant Ulta told NPR that of all the generations, these shoppers are getting into skincare earlier than anyone before. They're celebrating birthdays at Sephora and trading videos of their morning routines. I think, like, moisturizer and cleanser is really important. Millie Carlisle is 12 from San Antonio, Texas. I definitely want, like, more hydrated skin. Jocelyn Stewart is 15 from Long Island in New York. I find most of my stuff on TikTok. That's one clear trendsetter. Videos called Get Ready With Me, glowing influencers gliding on toners and bronzing drops. The concept is old, but it took off during the pandemic self-care boom. Flooding TikTok, but also YouTube. Even Pinterest is now full of youth beauty content. My daughter is not even on social media, but it filters down into the playgrounds, right? Brooke Grove's daughter is 10. They're in Westchester, New York, trying to keep up with trends. Like it went through big bows to fidgets and poppets, not even like a year ago to, you know, the latest um, Drunk Elephant product. Drunk Elephant, it's one of the top brands among teens and tweens, though its cream can run over $60. Old-timers Seraphine Cetaphil are also big thanks to TikTok, but mostly today's skincare aisles know their new audience. It's all cute droppers and colorful jars from buzzy brands like Glow Recipe, which even makes a skincare set called Fruit Babies. The packaging has changed especially for things that are marketed towards a younger consumer. Natalie Cutler tracks retail as a principal at accounting and advisory firm BDO. Neon colors, you know, hot pink, hot yellow, and even the smells that they're using. Like whipped cream or gummy bear. All this has parents puzzled how best to respond. I tell my kids, I'm like, we use skincare products to look like your skin now. <laughs> Grove says she often reminds her 10-year-old that trends and looks are not what makes you a good friend or a kind person. She also found herself borrowing her daughter's eyebrow gel for a work gala. I don't want to be the mom that just shuts things down. I want to at least be involved in the conversation. Obviously, I want her to feel included with her group of friends. Wanting to be your best, look your best, can be positive. Kelly Gray Carlisle, a mom from San Antonio. I do absolutely worry about body image stuff, and I do worry about the materialism. Parents can look out for some red flags, says pediatric psychiatrist Stephanie Hartzell, like big personality changes or a sense of relentless and desperate need. I always tell parents, your gut is the most important thing that you have. Hartzell recently asked her young therapy clients if they watched those Get Ready With Me beauty and skincare videos. Most of them did. Some confirmed that this habit sprouted feelings of self-consciousness. For others, it really helps them with self-care. She heard this from her patients most affected by anxiety and depression. Getting motivated to brush their teeth, wash their face, take makeup off if they apply it, or shower. I got similar answers when asking teens and tweens the why of it all. What's the point of the elaborate skincare routines for their fresh faces? I don't know, it just makes me feel like organized. 11-year-old Anna Simone. It kinda like gives me motivation, if that makes sense, like to move on in the day, kind of. Completing a ritual, having her own moment, feeling put together, but also she's quick to remind it's just really fun. Alina Seluch, NPR News.
Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at AECF.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. Bundle up tonight. It's going to be cold all the way down to about 20 degrees. Clear skies tonight. Tomorrow, a lot like today. Sunshine only reaching the mid-30s, though. As of now, the holiday weekend is looking mixed. 31 degrees in Boston. The time is 4.59. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. says it has serious concerns over a draft U.N. Security Council resolution on Gaza just hours before a planned vote. At issue is a call for urgent humanitarian pauses between Israel and Hamas. The U.S. says it's concerned the resolution could actually slow down humanitarian aid in Gaza. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up, it's already a challenge for some families to visit a loved one in jail. Now it might be even more difficult. In Michigan, for example, we recently obtained some data about the availability of in-person visits and found that the vast majority of jails have eliminated. Coming up, why many jails have switched to mainly video visits. Also, in an update to NPR's Taking Cover investigation, a U.S. senator tries to get the truth about military members' war wounds. It's 5.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is sending some of his top officials to Mexico. The announcement coming after Biden spoke with Mexico's President Andre Manuel Lopez Obrador earlier today about the overwhelming number of migrants at the southern border. More from NPR's Deepa Chevron. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby says officials from the Biden administration will discuss what the U.S. and Mexico can do to better manage their shared border. During their call, Biden and Lopez Obrador agreed that more enforcement actions are urgently needed and key ports of entry need to be reopened, Kirby says. And there's lots we're doing, but there's probably more we can be doing. And, and in order to do it effectively, you got to be in full partnership with uh, Mexican authorities. The officials on the trip will include Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, and Biden's Homeland Security Advisor Liz Sherwood-Randall. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, the White House. Colorado's not the only state where there are lawsuits challenging former President Donald Trump's candidacy for president in 2024. NPR's Becky Sullivan reports. Legal challenges are pending in more than a dozen states, all making arguments like the one that succeeded in Colorado. 
They point to a little-used clause of the 14th Amendment that dates back to the Civil War to argue that Trump is ineligible for the ballot because he engaged in insurrection through his actions around January 6th. State Supreme Courts in Oregon and Michigan are currently looking at similar cases, and after a hearing in Maine last week, the Secretary of State there is expected to make a decision in the coming days. The Colorado opinion is expected to be reviewed by the U.S. Supreme Court. Whatever the high court decides could apply to the whole country. Becky Sullivan, NPR News, Washington. A shooting at a university in central Prague has killed at least 15 people and injured dozens more. NPR's owner Beardsley says Czech police say the shooter's dead. Police say the gunman was a 24-year-old student at Charles University where the shooting took place. Footage aired on French television showed panicked students running across cobblestone streets. Others clung to the exterior of a building high above the ground. There were also photos of a man on a balcony with what appeared to be a sniper's rifle. Police have not confirmed he was the shooter. Authorities had been looking for the shooter since earlier in the day when they found his father dead. Police said there was no second shooter, but continued to search campus buildings for explosives. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. And the peak period for holiday travel, that would be right about now, with forecasts of major crowds at the nation's airports and on the highways. Millions are expected to fly this year. Auto Club AAA is forecasting even more people will drive 50 miles or more from home between Saturday and New Year's Day. AAA says it expects around 115 million people to travel this year. That's up about 2% from last year. Strong profit reports helped bounce back Wall Street today. The Dow gained 322 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. U.S. Congressman Seth Moulton is raising concerns about Israel's military strategy and its ongoing war with Hamas. Moulton is calling on the Biden administration to push Israel to reduce civilian casualties and improve conditions in Gaza. Speaking to CNN today, the Salem Democrat said he believes that Israel's current strategy may not be successful in eliminating Hamas. So what Israel needs to do is change its tactics to a way that envisions a political solution that both sides can buy into and ultimately tries to not just eliminate Hamas terrorists, but also win over the people of Palestine to that idea, to that political future. The Gaza Health Ministry estimates some 20,000 Palestinians have died since the conflict began in October. Two Rhode Island men face assault charges related to a fight at Gillette Stadium this September. After the fight, a 53-year-old New Hampshire man who had been assaulted died. Prosecutors reviewed video of the fight and determined John Vieira and Justin Mitchell, both of Warwick, were involved in the altercation. The two are set to be arraigned in January. Last night, the Boston Music Awards celebrated both established and up-and-coming local musicians. WBOR Solon Kelleher was at the ceremony and spoke with some of the winners. At venue Big Night Live, Mattapan rapper Clark D. had the crowd singing with him during his performance at the BMAs. The 24-year-old took home the award for Album EP of the Year. He says he's honored to be part of a rising rap and hip-hop scene. We have a lot of resilient, hard-working artists that are going to be able to live full-time off of their art and help and heal people. So Boston is in a great place. It's in great hands. Other winners of the night include Mattapan rapper Nay Speaks for Best New Artist, Dorchester rapper Key with Song of the Year, and Boston reggae band The Elevators for Best Live Artist of the Year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Solon Kelleher. Got a cold night ahead all the way down to 20 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny once again, reaching the mid-30s once again. And then for the weekend, looks like Saturday should be partly sunny anyway. Temperatures in the mid-40s. For Sunday, lots of clouds around in the mid-40s again. 
could see some sunshine returning for Christmas Day Monday. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Polls have closed in the Democratic Republic of Congo today. It was the second day of voting made necessary after several polling stations opened hours late or failed to open at all yesterday, which left millions of people unable to cast their ballots. Opposition figures have condemned the polls and even called for the vote to be scrapped and rerun. All of this has raised tensions even further in this vast, mineral-rich country racked by decades of intense violence by rebel groups and one of the world's worst humanitarian crises. President Felix Tshisekedi is seeking a second term in office and has been tipped as the favorite despite a turbulent first term in office. NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu joins us now from Lagos. Hi, Emmanuel. Hi. So tell us more about these pretty chaotic two days of voting in the DRC. Yes, you know, a spokesperson for President Sisekedi actually praised the elections as being inclusive, peaceful and transparent. But obviously the elections unfolded very differently. You know, it was described by one opposition figure as chaotic. You know, most polling stations opened late. Election materials didn't arrive everywhere. So some polling stations couldn't even open yesterday. The voting was extended in those stations. So people were allowed to then vote today. But that extension really focused criticism on this whole process. And five opposition figures have called this extension illegal and for the vote to be rerun entirely. It's clear that for millions of people in the country, they had to show just incredible amounts of endurance and patience just to vote. And even then, so many of them were disappointed. We heard from one man, Kembo Tokokole. He's been in hospital recently, but he left against his doctor's wishes just because he wanted to cast his ballot. He said he was on a drip, but left to vote for his chosen candidate, Martin Fayulu. But his name wasn't on the voter register when he got there, so he had to leave. And he said, how can you call these elections credible? And he said he felt his vote was stolen from him. Hmm. Well, we know that violence has been raging in the east of Congo and that the U.N. peacekeeping force is pulling out of the country right now. So what impact has all of that had on voting? Well, it's had a big impact, you know, not least on people there, but also on the Electoral Commission. You know, their preparation was definitely hampered. There's actually been a temporary lull in the fighting recently, but clearly that's not given any relief to the humanitarian crisis. You know, more than six million people are displaced in East DRC mainly, and that's where most of the violence has been intense by rebel groups trying to control this very mineral-rich region. Well, given all the extremely profound challenges this country is going through right now, what are you hearing from voters about all of this during this campaign? Just immense frustration. DLC is incredibly blessed with biodiversity, mineral riches. But after independence from a pretty brutal colonial regime, it's never really thrived. You know, it's scandalous that most of its 90 plus million people live in poverty. It's cobalt. You know, that's vital for 
green energy programs around the world for our smartphones. Um, you know, international companies, you know, are deeply invested in mining there, but millions of people in DRC don't seem to benefit. The president actually says he's renegotiating a number of mining contracts and he promised to tackle corruption when he was elected in 2018. But corruption has continued to thrive. And the most pressing issue is insecurity. And that's gotten worse over the last five years. The neighbouring country, Rwanda, has been accused of backing one of the largest rebel groups, M23. And that's led to rising tensions and the threat of war between these countries. So these are really some age-long challenges that are evolving and growing more complicated and entrenched. And that's what so many people in DRC are desperate to change. That is NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu in Lagos. Thank you so much, Emmanuel. Thank you. The holidays are often about trying to spend time with family, which can be tough when you have family in jail. And it's become even tougher because jails have been switching to video visitation systems. NPR's Martin Costi reports on a movement to bring back in-person visits. Prisons are mostly back to the visiting rules they had before the pandemic. But jails, where people are held for shorter periods, usually before trial, not so much. There's no more eye-to-eye, face-to-face visitation. David McFadden is with the Sheriff's Office in Craven County, North Carolina. The jail there has switched to a remote video system, which he says saves everybody time and effort. The inmates themselves don't have to leave the cell block, so it takes less personnel to have to go and bring them to another area where there was the face-to-face visitation and also screen the visitors coming into the facility. Family members no longer come to the jail at all. They can connect from home through a contract video service. It costs $8 for 20 minutes. Video visiting systems have been gaining ground in jails for years, but during COVID, video became the only option And now many jails are reluctant to bring the in-person option back. Wanda Bertram is with the Prison Policy Initiative. In Michigan, for example, we recently obtained some data about the availability of in-person visits and found that the vast majority of jails have eliminated. There are no national statistics tracking the visiting rules for all the thousands of locally run jails. But Bertram says the trend seems clear. Not only are jails cutting back on in-person visits, they're now uh, building new facilities to exclude that possibility entirely. The jails that have done this say video allows inmates more time to visit with family, even outside normal jail visiting hours. But is video time the same as in-person time? Nika Jones-Tapia says no. She's a psychologist who once ran Chicago's massive Cook County Jail. And when she was a little girl, her father was incarcerated. I recall back in the 80s visiting my father and being able to bring food and just being able to have more normalized experiences with my dad helped us to maintain our bond. That was a minimum security prison. Jails today are far less permissive. But Tapia is trying to create exceptions to that. She's now with the nonprofit Chicago Beyond, which is working to replicate around the country a program that Cook County Jail created for visiting families. They walk into a visitation space that is more colorful. It has bright lighting and has games and activities so that the incarcerated parents, the caretakers who have brought the children and the children can engage in family play. Tappy says this may involve extra effort, but that's made up for by the positive outcomes for everybody, including the corrections officers, who tend to volunteer for this more upbeat duty. Julie Paleman at the University of Wisconsin-Madison studies families of incarcerated people, 
And she says the research has found that these in-person contact visits have long-term benefits for kids and parents. But she's not necessarily down on video visits per se. They're not a bad supplement. And also, especially if they're done remotely. So like a kid in a family could like stay home or be in a comfortable place or if they're offered, you know, for free. I think that that can help, but I don't think it should ever be a replacement. At least one state, Massachusetts, agrees with this. In 2018, it passed a law saying video visits are okay as long as inmates are still guaranteed the in-person option. But nationally, the momentum is toward video. Back in Craven County, Major McFadden is not surprised. Our whole society and socialization has changed now where, uh, incredibly, many people do communicate when they're not incarcerated, FaceTiming with their uh, smartphones or their computers. And in a jail, he welcomes that change. He'd rather not have kids coming to visit. He thinks it's just too traumatic. And with the switch to video, he says kids can potentially have more time with a parent the same way they're now connecting to the rest of the world through a screen. Martin Costi, NPR News. There is a different kind of Tasmanian devil on the loose right now. That's Neil the Seal roaming the streets of Tasmania, Australia. Morning, Neil. And Neil is actually kind of a celebrity. It's unusual now to see a seal do a chicken's job, that is, crossing the street. But Neil loves the attention. Though he can also be a nuisance. Get out of here, Neil! He is often found blocking roads and residents' doors. Neil, someone lives here, mate. I heard a noise outside and I I thought that somebody was um, trying to break into my car. Um, So I looked out the window and then next minute I've got this big seal looking up at me in my bedroom window and I was like, oh, hello. (laughs) (laughs) That's Amber Harris who missed work because Neil was blocking her car. Though Neil is only three years old, he is still a growing southern elephant seal. Currently he clocks in at about 1,300 pounds. Marine ecologist Sophia Volsky works at the Institute for Marine and Arctic Studies, and some of her colleagues helped move Neil last year. I saw a photo of maybe 10 strong men with a big tarp, and they lifted him up to the back of a trailer. That wouldn't be possible this year. He's gained so much more weight. You'd have to get a crane at some point, and that's just a massive effort. At the time, Neil was getting harassed by people and dogs in Kingston Beach. So to keep him safe, the Department of Natural Resources and Environment Tasmania moved him to a more secluded area. But Neil keeps coming back. Since Neil was a pup, he's frequented different beaches near Tasmania's capital, Hobart. Volsky says fewer than 10 southern elephant seals have been born in Tasmania in the last 20 years. She studies the species and isn't surprised that Neil returns to the island's beach town this time every year. This is the time where they molt. So they need to be on land to do this, and they don't go back to sea because they need to shed their skin. Southern elephant seals like Neil were hunted into extinction in Tasmania in the 19th century. So he's the only one that we know of that is an actual local elephant seal. Volsky says she's thrilled that people are excited about Neil, but... It's important that we educate the public to keep their distance and to respect wildlife in general, to give them space. And yet... There's just something about Neil and his antics that keep people across the internet posting their love for Neil the Seal. This is my son now. He's a scallywag, a silly little guy, and he enjoys breaking and entering into lawns that are not his. He's so cute! <laughs> so the nice 
by someone sends you a cat video, be sure to send them Neil the Seal. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And coming up in about 20 minutes on All Things Considered, author Alison McDermott about her new novel set in 1963 and its central question, what do you sacrifice in order to do something good for somebody else? We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. On Wall Street, stocks grabbed a good amount of ground today. The Dow rose nearly nine-tenths of a percent. S&P rebounded from its worst day since September. It rose a full percent, and the Nasdaq grew by one and a quarter percent. More children now have access to a prescription video game designed to treat attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The game is called Endeavor Rx, and it's made by Boston-based digital medicine company Achille Interactive. Federal regulators have approved the game's use by 13- to 17-year-olds. They'd already approved it for use by younger children. The change is expected to more than double the number of pediatric ADHD patients who can use the game. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair at One Brattle Square. Local crafts for gift-giving. Today through Saturday, the 21st to 23rd. HarvardSquareHolidayFair.com. And A Street Frames. 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. Clear skies from today should yield clear skies tonight. Temperatures down around 20 overnight tonight. Tomorrow, sunny again, back up around 35 again. And for the weekend, a blend of clouds and sunshine Saturday, rising to the mid-40s. The mid-40s again on Sunday, but it should be a cloudy day. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Neon with Ferrari. Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career. With Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey. Opens in theaters Christmas Day. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. Earlier this year, NPR's podcast, Taking Cover, told the story of a friendly fire in Iraq back in 2004. Two Marines and an Iraqi interpreter were killed in the tragedy, which also wounded more than a dozen others. Our reporters learned that the son of a prominent politician was involved in the mistake, and the whole thing had been covered up. Now, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee is asking the Marine Corps for answers. NPR's Tom Bowman and Graham Smith bring us the latest. April 12, 2004, U.S. Marines accidentally launched an 81-millimeter mortar on one of their own positions during fighting in Fallujah. Among those killed, Lance Corporals Brad Shooter and Rob Zerhide. Zerhide's wife, Elena, was expecting their first child. April 12th was my due date. 
I was due on April 12th, and my husband died on April 12th. The Marines didn't tell Elena the truth about how Rob died. They said it was enemy fire. She heard rumors it was an accident, but she wasn't officially informed it was friendly fire till more than three years later. And even then, a lot was held back. She wants to know why. Because that's what I view all of this is a big, big fat lie. When NPR reached out to the Marine Corps leadership after the podcast ran, telling them about our investigation, about Elena, and several wounded veterans who'd never been told the truth, the Marine said there'd be no response. But there's someone else now looking for answers about what went wrong that day and why it was so poorly handled afterwards. Arizona Senator Mark Kelly, a Democrat who serves on the Armed Services Committee. Robert Zerhide's widow, Elena, is one of my constituents. Uh, his son, Robert, who wasn't even born when he was killed, is there in Tucson with his mom. Going to Kelly's office, you walk past the orange spacesuit he wore as an astronaut in a photo of the fighter jet he flew in the Navy. He was a combat pilot, like John McCain, the Republican war hero whose desk Kelly now sits behind. They deserve answers. It's important that they get them. Not only them, but the folks who were wounded. You know, why were they not informed? You know, why did it take this long? It shouldn't. They should be informed immediately. The Marine Corps has regulations and they need to follow them. When we went to the Marines for answers, at first they said they couldn't find any documentation of the friendly fire. Then they gave us conflicting stories about what had happened. And then they failed to even follow regulations and reach out to the wounded vets. But Kelly's a senator. They won't ignore him. The senator told us he recently met with the number two Marine officer, General Christopher Mahoney and he raised the issue of this mishandled incident. Had he any idea what you were talking about, or what did he say? Yeah, he was familiar with it, and he told us he's gonna get us some answers, and I, I trust that he's gonna do that. One of the wounded troops Kelly wants answers for is John Smith. Smith was a Marine corporal. He lost a leg in the use of one eye that day. Hey, John. We visited him recently in Maryland. He ambles out of his house slowly, walking with a stiff gait. Yeah, ready? Great to see you. Likewise. How you been? I can't complain. Enjoying myself for the holidays. How's everything doing with you, though? All good. Um. John's working on his master's degree in mental health counseling, and he's a hip-hop artist on the side. He says he still thinks about that explosion that mangled his leg every day. For about... 10, 15 minutes in the morning, I'm back in 2004 because I have to put myself back together every time. Yeah, the prosthetic. Exactly. So it's like I don't get to move all the way forward. But, I mean, after I put myself together, my daughter runs down and I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm here now. By Pentagon regulations, someone from the Marines should have met with Smith and given him a copy of the investigation almost 20 years ago. I've never been contacted on this at all. Like, I, for none of it. You haven't heard anything official from the Marines? Nothing at all. And you learned about it from the podcast? Exactly. What, is that, what do you think about that? I think it's, it's honestly, and the only word I can say is disgusting. Like, you, you espouse the words honor, courage, commitment, and you want us to follow them, and we give our life to follow them. But when the ball falls on you, it's all of a sudden not important. 
So why were John Smith and others never told the truth? Well, here's what we uncovered. One of the Marines involved in this deadly mistake, the officer who plotted this mortar mission, was First Lieutenant Duncan Hunter Jr., son of Duncan Sr., then a California congressman and the powerful chairman of the House Armed Services Committee. Among those wounded that day in Fallujah were two U.S. Army soldiers. We met Joe Colabuno on the National Mall last summer. You can hear the cicadas. He remembers seeing the mortar round fall while he and his friend were having a smoke in the school courtyard where the Marines were holed up. So he got blasted forward. I got blasted against there was a little wall, you know, and Shihab was standing in the absolute worst possible way that you could be standing in something explodes next to you. Shahab was their interpreter, an Iraqi who took the job to help support his young brothers and sisters back in Baghdad. Shihab was just, just like this, staring up at the stars. Joe Colabuno and his friend John Nelson were both badly wounded, could have been medically retired, but they fought to stay in. Both are still on active duty and hold the rank of Sergeant Major. The Marines have never told them the truth about their wounds and the death of their friend Shahab. Colabuno always assumed the explosion that day in April 2004 was caused by the enemy, till we told him what really happened. He's never talked much about that day. I don't, I don't carry it like a weight. Uh, I carry it somewhere, I guess, but um, I mean, war, war, war sucks. War is hell, right? I mean, we we, we know that. We know this, but I, I it's so stupid to. to why would you cover it up? But He points to the Capitol building, looming at the end of the mall. As long as these guys understand, and the further away we get from war, the less they understand the, the cost of war going forward, right? I mean, it needs to be an incredible tax on the nation to go to war. It should be, um, because we need to think real hard before we do that. Which gets us back to why Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona tells us he's looking into this case. He says, beyond these men and the families getting the truth, it's important for the military to learn from their mistakes. To prevent future ones. And figure out why it happened. And then you need to put in some you know, processes and procedures to make sure that stuff like that does not happen again. We also wrote to the Army Chief of Staff, General Randy George, who had his lawyers reach out to the Marines referring the questions on to them. Meanwhile, the Marines who fought in Fallujah 20 years ago are planning a reunion in California in February. They've invited Colabuno and the other soldier too, men who they never got to know at the time, but who share the same tragedy. They hope by then, they'll get some answers from the Marine Corps. I'm Graham Smith. And I'm Tom Bowman, NPR News. Tom and Graham are the hosts of NPR's investigative podcast, Taking Cover. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 25 minutes, Bob Mondello's uh, take on the supernatural coming-of-age tale. Andrew hates drama, all of us strangers. In the forecast, pull up the blankets overnight tonight. Should be down around 20 degrees. Another nice sunny day tomorrow in the mid-30s. Saturday, clouds and sunshine both inching up to the low 40s. And then Sunday should be generally cloudy again in the mid-40s. 31 degrees in Boston. The time is 530.
WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages through December 31st. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times, and they require serious journalism. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR help make sense of what can, at times, feel like a senseless world. So keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Thank you. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani has filed for bankruptcy. Georgia Public Radio's Peter Begello reports the filing comes days after he was ordered to pay a huge amount of money in damages to two Georgia election workers in a defamation suit. A judge last week ordered Giuliani to pay the workers $148 million after he was found to have spread lies about them after the 2020 election. That is by far his largest debt, and bankruptcy likely won't erase it. The law says debts that come from a willful and malicious injury can't be dissolved. A Giuliani political advisor says the filing will give him time to pursue an appeal. Giuliani also owes millions to his lawyers in the IRS and could owe more if found liable in several other pending lawsuits. For NPR News, I'm Peter Biello in Atlanta. Officials in Chicago are asking the federal government for help after the governor of Texas chartered a flight of 100 migrants to the city. Mayor Brandon Johnson says Governor Greg Abbott is determined to create chaos. We're doing everything in our power to deal with this very overwhelming um, international crisis that has placed the city of Chicago as a target by this governor simply because he doesn't want to adhere to law. The Texas governor is a harsh critic of President Biden's immigration policies. Abbott has sent tens of thousands of migrants from his city to several Democratic-led cities this year, including Washington, D.C., Boston, and New York City. A federal judge is blocking a law that is set to take effect in California in January, barring people from carrying firearms in most public places. The judge says the law violates the Second Amendment. Stocks on Wall Street closed higher today. The Dow was up 322 points. This is NPR News in Washington. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. MBTA General Manager Phil Eng has an early New Year's resolution to improve the transit system's bus service. WBUR's Rob Lane has the story. The T's bus network underwent dramatic service cuts in late 2021. Bill Eng took over the top job at the agency earlier this year. He tells WBUR's Radio Boston that he'd like to restore the frequency of bus trips to about where they were before the pandemic. We're hiring. We're bringing and training new bus operators. We hope to be able to get back to similar levels of bus service next year. Back in 2021, the T cited a shortage of bus drivers as the impetus for service cuts. Eng says he's hopeful a planned redesign of bus routes in Greater Boston will also improve rider experience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Rob Lane.
Massachusetts students attending school online can now take part in interscholastic sports. The announcement from the State Interscholastic Athletic Association today is a shift from regulations that went into effect last year. That's when the association barred students from two virtual schools from participating in sports. The average price of heating oil in Massachusetts has dropped below $4 a gallon. A survey by the State Department of Energy Resources shows the statewide average is now $3.98 a gallon. That's a nickel lower than last week, 52 cents a gallon lower than this time last year. And today is the winter solstice in the northern hemisphere. It's the shortest day of the year in terms of the number of daylight hours. But National Weather Service meteorologist Kevin Kadima says that more daylight is on the way. The sun is already setting later in the afternoon. From about you know, December 8th through the 13th, we have a 4:11 sunset, and they uh, slowly start increasing beyond that. So today we actually have a 4:14 sunset, but the shortest day of the year is the day of the winter solstice because of the uh, the late sunrise. And if you're checking for Boston, the solstice is at 10:27 tonight. It's 5:34. WBUR supporters include Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at globesanta.org. Beautiful, clear skies tonight. A cold breeze down around 20 degrees. Bright sunshine tomorrow again in the mid-30s again. Saturday, partly sunny, inching up to the mid-40s. Sunday, turning overcast. But we should see some sunshine on Christmas Day Monday. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the law firm Cooley LLP, with offices in the US, Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. The question at the heart of Alice McDermott's latest book is, what do you sacrifice in order to do something good for someone else? The author's answer is told through the story of Trisha, a young wife who's moved to 1963 Saigon with her new husband, an engineer loaned to the Navy. She is a um, stranger in a strange land in many ways. A working class girl, first to go to college in her family, an all-girl Catholic school in Manhattan. And she's following her up-and-coming, rising into the upper classes husband to Saigon. She's not quite sure why there are so many American engineers in Saigon in 1963. But she sees herself, as many women of that era did, as a helpmeet to her husband. Almost immediately, Trisha is swept up into the world of another Saigon wife, Charlene. She sort of burst into the novel in much the same way she burst into Trisha's life. My first reaction was very much like Trisha's, like, oh, God, I know this type. You know, the pushy corporate wife getting you to do things you don't want to do and smarter than everybody else. But she also is very philosophical about her role in the world. She disapproves of human suffering. The story of the relationship between the two women is recounted through letters decades later between Trisha and Charlene's daughter, Rainey. I think what that distance does is 
Number one, it gives Trisha an opportunity to tell her story because a woman of that era would say, my husband was doing the important things. But also Rainey, who's a child in 1963, asked Trisha, do you remember me? Do you remember my mother? And that gives Trisha permission to remember. And as Trisha remembers that relationship with her polar opposite Charlene, what the two women gave each other all those years ago in Saigon and what they learned about life becomes clear. Female relationships are where you can have some of the most interesting conversations because nobody's stopping to mansplain that you don't have the politics right or the history right. And again, when you're dealing with women of this era, Basic things they didn't know about their bodies. Basic things they didn't know about childbirth and miscarriage. Uh, Miscarriage was not spoken of. Yes, it was a failing, but in some ways, because it wasn't spoken of, it made it seem even worse. But women could speak to one another about that. So in some ways, Charlene is a guide for Tricia through this world, but she's also an opportunity for Trisha to discover what she thinks and how she feels. She pushes Trisha into some uncomfortable places, but also enlarges her sense of what she can do in the world. What do you think it is that Trisha pushes Charlene to do or challenges Charlene? What do you think her role is? You talked about how Charlene pushes her into uncomfortable places, but what about Trisha's end of the bargain? Yeah. At one point, Trisha describes how she gives a phrase that Trisha has learned, the Hebrew midrash of Tikkum Olam, repair the world, and she gives it to Charlene because she sees this as kind of what Charlene, in her limited circumstances, wants to do. Charlene turns right back and says, ah, yeah, but the Buddhists say, mend yourself. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that's the heart of the question that Charlene proposes to Tricia. Do you go out and battle against this human suffering that is insurmountable, or do you lock the door and say, I'm just going to take care of what I'm meant to take care of? Tricia is very eager to grow her family and to have a child, but she does have these multiple miscarriages, and there is this beautiful but incredibly devastating scene in your book after Trisha has a miscarriage after about three months of pregnancy and Charlene comes to visit her. And there's this moment that I will not forget where the two of them are looking at that embryo together and Charlene baptizes it. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk about that scene and that moment? In some ways, I think this is the moment where Charlene, the stereotype, (laughs) the annoying charity lady becomes fully human. Charlene comes in and offers her comfort and gives a sense of respect to the grief that she's living through when the wider world, the male world, would not have done so. Trisha's husband, as good intentioned as he is, doesn't really know what to say to her except maybe get over it, you know. But Charlene gives the grace of allowing her to mourn and recognizing the importance of this. And I think also it's that sense, and and in many ways I think this is what the novel ultimately became for me, the value we place on any life, children's lives, especially, especially in war, something we're all very aware of right now. What value do we place on motherhood, childhood, the grief that we feel in any ordinary life. I think perhaps one of the reasons that this scene has stuck with me and I found it so moving is because 
even today where we talk about so many shared experiences, where we have more education and more knowledge about our own bodies as women, right. we do not talk or write about experiences of miscarriage and the level of detail and specificity that are shown in this book. What is it that you hope the reader takes away from this? Well, you know, one of the intentions, I think, of the novel and why I said it in 1963 in Saigon, because all these amazing world events were happening, but the lives of women also had great significance to them and their ongoing. And so the female friendship, the works of charity, bringing lollipops to the children in the hospital. In some ways, when you put that work up against all the world-changing things that were happening, it seems trivial. And I guess I wanted to shine the light on that and say, no, it is not. It is as human and as complicated as what the CIA was doing, <laughs> the men in the CIA were doing in Saigon in 1963, as all the world events that 1963 is so rich in. There's great significance in the ongoing human drama of reproduction. One of Charlene's refrains about suffering is, don't turn away from it. Even if you can't solve it, it is a small evil to turn away from it. And in some ways, the complexity of women's lives, the complexity of having children, bringing them into the world, raising them safely, giving them a chance to have their own children is something that we should respect and not turn away from as well. One of the things you mentioned earlier is that one of the central questions of this book is what is the value and the meaning of charity? And I wonder if you think that the book offers an answer to that, or is there an easy answer to that question? Yeah, I hope there's not an easy answer. I thought I, um, It's complicated, and I think the easy answers in some ways make shallow every effort. You know, why you're doing that, that's not going to do any good, or do that, it's going to do good. No, it's not something terrible will still happen elsewhere in the world. The professor at the University of Virginia who gives Tricia the phrase, Tikum Olam, repair the world, compares it to the old house he lives in. You fix one thing, for sure something else is going to be broken. That's the nature of what we live with. So it's complicated. And there is that sense of what do you sacrifice in order to do something for someone else? Alice McDermott, thank you so much. Thank you. Her new novel, Absolution, is out now. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The end of the year is a time when many people travel to see loved ones. Maybe you have family or friends coming over for the holidays and you realize, oh, it is time to clean up. Okay, don't panic. No matter how big a mess you're looking at, therapist Casey Davis offers this perspective. The only thing that actually matters is whether my house is functioning and whether I'm able to live the kind of life I want to inside of it. Life Kit's Marielle Sagara talked to Davis about her book, How to Keep House While Drowning, and they have an action plan for getting your space under control quickly. It's called the five things tidying method because Davis says there are really only five things in any room. There's trash, dishes, laundry, things that have a place and things that don't have a place. You start at the top of that list and go category by category, ignoring everything else in the room for the moment. So first, trash. Get a trash bag or a trash can and move around the room picking up the garbage. Do not take the trash out yet. Because one of the things that gets us stuck is that we get distracted. So if you, the more times you leave that room, the more likely you are to get distracted on some different project. Step two, 
dishes, gather them up. You could use a laundry basket without holes in it or get a small rolling hamper. Depends on what works for you. What kind of makes your brain feel like it's on a greased track? The reality is there are going to be ways of doing things that make you feel like you are grinding gears with no oil, where every step of the process kind of feels miserable and, and you have to force it. So don't do things that way. You're going to put the dishes in the sink, or if the sink is in a different room, maybe you put them in a corner for now. Step three is laundry. Now, there are often in a given room various types of laundry. There's clean, but not in the drawer. There's dirty, maybe a little stinky, not going to wear it again. And then there's the in-between. I don't know. I mean, I could wear it again, but it's not exactly clean enough to go back in the drawer. So here's what I do. Um, I don't have all those categories. And I'm not saying that I don't, but like I don't. I just, if it's on the floor, it's going into the hamper and it's getting washed. And that really simplifies things for me. Whatever you decide, gather the laundry, put it in a basket or a bag, and bring it to the laundry machine or set it by the door of your home. Then move to step four, things that have a place. This one's pretty straightforward. Put the things away. Finally, step five, things that don't have a place. This is always sort of my check-in moment where I kind of check in with myself and I go, okay, how are we feeling? What else is on the agenda today? How motivated are we? What's our body feeling like? What's our concentration level? Because sometimes I just put it aside in a basket and have to do other things, go, you know, throw the trash away. But if she's feeling ready to tackle this, it's time to make some decisions. Is there anything she can purge or donate? And then I go, okay, is there anything in here that kind of like has cousins or close friends? Meaning, maybe you don't have a designated spot for that box cutter, but you do have a drawer where you keep the scissors. That could work. Now that you've made it through the five things, take out the trash and decide whether you have the energy to do the dishes or the laundry right now. Davis says in these moments, you want to think in terms of kindness to yourself. Maybe right now, the kindness is washing one bowl and one cup so I can use them in the morning. And sometimes I say, I'm not going to even touch these dishes because I deserve rest. And I do that out of kindness too. I'm going to go let myself lay down on the couch. She says when you start to treat yourself with kindness, things can change. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. You can find more life hacks and tips at npr.org slash lifekit. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, the current state of reproductive rights in the United States, coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR. In the forecast, clouds from today should dissipate overnight tonight for clear skies. If you're planning to be outside for the solstice, it's at 1027 in Boston. It's going to be cold out there, though, just about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny again, back up around 35 degrees again. And then for the weekend, a blend of clouds and sunshine on Saturday, rising to the mid-40s, mostly cloudy on Sunday. This is WBUR. It's 548. WBUR supporters include Zoo New England. Immerse yourself in a winter wonderland at Zoo Lights, Stone Zoo's sparkling annual holiday tradition. Advanced tickets required at stonezoo.org. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. There's a massive evergreen tree decked out with lights on the Boston Common. It's the city's official Christmas tree, but it's also a symbol of gratitude from our neighbors to the north. 
Here's a tidbit of history from WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. For more than half a century, Nova Scotia has sent down a fresh tree for the holiday season. To say thank you to the people of, uh, of Boston and New England for what they did for us in our real time of need. That's Nova Scotia Premier Tim Houston. Back in 1917, two ships collided in Halifax Harbor, causing a deadly explosion. Hundreds of people were killed and thousands injured. By 10 o'clock that night, the good people of Boston had loaded a train with medical supplies, doctors, nurses. The Canadian province continues to recognize Boston's efforts that day by sending the perfect Christmas tree. To get more stories like this about Boston's place in history, head to WBUR.org slash fieldguide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. The question of how to get more aid into Gaza has deadlocked the United Nations Security Council. For three days, proposals have been debated there, and they continue tonight. The nuances are complex, but in general, the U.S. has a veto power and could use it to stop proposals that it and Israel see as allowing Hamas to resupply or rearm. But millions of people in Gaza are in increasingly dire conditions. NPR's Michelle Kellerman is covering all of this and joins us now. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Elsa. Okay, so what are these proposals that are prompting objections from the U.S.? Well, one of the ideas in the original draft resolution is that the secretary general would set up a monitoring mechanism for trucks going into Gaza. But, you know, Israel and the U.S. oppose that because Israel has been doing those inspections. They want to make sure they say that weapons aren't being smuggled in for Hamas. Um, The U.S. says it's been working hard to get Israel to agree to screen more trucks and to speed things up. The Israelis did just recently um, open a second crossing point into Gaza. Mm -hmm. U.S. officials acknowledge it's still not enough, but there is a system in place. Here's how National Security Council spokesman John Kirby put it today. It's important to us, of course, uh, that the humanitarian situation in Gaza gets addressed. We are working harder than any other nation to actually address those concerns. You can hear how defensive he's sounding. Yeah. I mean, the U.S. just doesn't want more complications. And one complicating factor at the U.N. is that Israel and the U.N. just don't trust each other. There have been trading accusations throughout this war. Huh. Okay, well, I know that the U.S. has vetoed previous resolutions. Do you think it will do that again? Well, if it goes to a vote as originally drafted, the U.S. probably would veto. But the talks this week have focused on ways to get the U.S. to a yes or at least to an abstention. Um, You know, the Security Council has passed only one resolution since this latest conflict began. That was back in mid-November. It also focused on the plight of civilians in Gaza, particularly children. It called for urgent and extended humanitarian pauses and aid corridors. That was language that the U.S. said it could accept it, but it has vetoed resolutions calling for a ceasefire because it says that Israel has the right to go after Hamas, which carried out that attack on Israel on October 7th. But, you know, as this humanitarian crisis grows, every time the U.S. vetoes something, Washington faces a backlash around the world, and there's growing criticism of the Biden administration at home, too. Right, because conditions are getting worse in Gaza, and now the U.N. is warning of mass hunger there, right? What are they saying about that? Yeah, the U.N. spokesman, um, Stefan Dujaric, 
painted a pretty grim picture today. He talked about how few hospitals are operating Gaza, how Israeli uh, military operations have uprooted tens of thousands of Palestinians who really don't have anywhere safe to go. And here's what he said about the food situation. According to a food security analysis issued today, more than half a million people are facing catastrophic hunger conditions in Gaza. The World Food Program warns that these levels of acute food insecurity are unprecedented in recent history and that Gaza risks famine. You know, as it, he's talking about one in four Gazans that have run out of food and are in brink of starvation. So what the U.N. wants is a humanitarian ceasefire and more aid routes. The resolution that's being debated calls for pauses and unhindered humanitarian access. It also calls for more aid routes, including by sea, but it's not clear how that would happen. That is NPR's Michelle Kellerman. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you. Two TV heartthrobs, Andrew Scott, the hot priest from Fleabag, and Paul Meskel, who plays the conflicted romantic Connell in Normal People, star in a new movie called All of Us Strangers. Critic Bob Mondello says the word that best describes the film, for several reasons, is haunting. Adam is a screenwriter who lives in a massive, mostly vacant apartment building in London. He's working on a script about his parents, who died when he was 11. If by working you mean watching TV and occasionally going outside when the fire alarm sounds. One night when he does and looks up, there's only one other lit apartment in the whole building with a guy who's stayed put. After the all clear, there's a knock at Adam's door. Hello. Saw so you looking at me from the street. I'm Harry. Drink. He motions to the bottle in his hand. It's meant to be the best in the world, but I, I couldn't tell you why. So. No, thanks. Okay, um... Okay, how about I come in anyway? If not for a drink, then... for whatever else you might want. Adam declines, but the ache of loneliness lingers. The next day, to research his script, he takes a train out to the suburb where he grew up and finds his old house, and as night falls, has an encounter with another man, only this time Adam's the one who's hoping to be invited in. So you're going to be over the moon to see you. And he is. Guess what I found loitering in the park? Is it him? Oh, yeah, it's definitely him. Look in his eyes. Yes, it is you. It's his parents who've not aged a day. Hi. Hi. Don't just stand there. Get yourself inside. A ghost story of sorts about connection where it's least expected and after hope is all but gone. Speaking of which, Adam returns to his apartment and meets up with Harry again, this time letting things go where they will. I'm assuming you're not with anyone. Never see you with anyone. Physical intimacy leading to personal intimacy. This your mom and dad? Yeah. They died just before I was 12. I'm trying to write about them at the moment. How's it going? Strangely. You might say that. Filmmaker Andrew Hay has adapted a Japanese novel called Strangers in ways that let him explore family and distance in a personal way. How personal? The house Andrew visits when he sees his parents in the movie is the house the filmmaker grew up in. I would hear you crying in your room after school. Did the boys bully you then? 
Hay is telling a generous tale of injuries done glancingly and without intent, of parents being offered a second chance in their children's memory. Sorry I never came in your room when you were crying. Dad, Dad, I get it. It was, it was so long. It was so long ago. And of comfort offered by those damaged children to each other in the present. I'm really sorry. It was a long time ago. Yeah, I don't think that matters. Andrew Scott's tightly wound Adam, Paul Mescal's chill but also wounded Harry, haunted by memories and self-doubt, two strangers finding comfort in each other as they struggle to reconcile the men they've become with the expectations they're still trying to set aside, the disconnect that makes all of us strangers to our pasts and that makes Andrew Hayes' All of Us Strangers such a haunting meditation on how we can connect. The power of love. I'm Bob Mandela. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. From Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure the future of Africa's wildlife and wild lands. Learn more at awf.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday evening. Today marks the December solstice, the day with the shortest amount of light and the longest amount of dark. The good news for lovers of light, as of tomorrow, the days will get longer and the nights will get shorter. 30 degrees in Boston. The time is 5.59. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. I'm Weekend Edition host Sharon Brody, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. You can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There have been wins and losses since the overturning of Roe versus Wade. This year, lawmakers in many states continue to curb abortion rights, and in many of those states, voters spurned the lawmakers. You know, Republicans are looking at these election results and seeing voters appear to push back against abortion restrictions, often even in pretty red states. This is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. A look at the current state of reproductive rights in the U.S. coming up. America's national parks are hailed as being one of the country's most treasured resources. We'll hear from some of the dissenters. And we'll take you to Boston's iconic North End bakeries that have been making cannolis for generations. The flavors have sure changed. Oreo, cappuccino, peanut butter. Would your ancestors turn up their nose at, like, cappuccino cannolis? No, if they seen how much money we were making, no way. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Special Counsel Jack Smith is urging the Supreme Court to speed up a review of the election interference case against former President Donald Trump. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports prosecutors want to make sure the high court considers the issue before it finishes its work this term. Prosecutors say the charges against Trump for allegedly attempting to overturn the last presidential election are of the utmost gravity. They say the Supreme Court needs to answer the key question of whether Trump enjoys absolute immunity from prosecution for actions he took while president. Trump's D.C. trial on the election interference case had been set to start in March, but the proceedings are on pause while courts consider his immunity argument. Trump's attorneys are asking the court to stay out of the legal debate over presidential immunity for now, calling the Justice Department's move a partisan rush to judgment. The DOJ says it wants the charges to be resolved promptly, whatever the result. Carrie Johnson, NPR News. After 11 weeks of war, satellite imagery is showing the increasing devastation in Gaza. Around one-third of structures have been obliterated there by Israeli bombing and shelling, with the Palestinian death toll now at the nearing the 20,000 mark, according to officials in Gaza. The Israeli military, which launched its war after Hamas attacked Israel, killing 1,200 people, has said little about what kinds of bombs and artillery it's using. A majority of American adults have not gotten updated flu and COVID-19 vaccines this season. That's according to new data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The data comes as cases of both illnesses are on the rise. Here's NPR's Maria Godoy. As of December 9th, only 18.3% of U.S. adults had gotten an updated COVID shot, and only 42% had gotten vaccinated against flu. Data from the CDC also found that less than one in five adults aged 60 and older had gotten the new vaccine against respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV, a respiratory illness that can be life-threatening for older adults, as well as infants. Public health officials have been urging people to get all three shots if they're eligible. The CDC issued a health alert last week warning that the U.S. is seeing rising hospitalization rates for COVID, flu, and RSV, even as vaccination rates lag. The CDC says that could lead to more cases of all three viruses and more strain on the healthcare system in coming weeks. Maria Godoy, NPR News. At least 15 people are dead. More than two dozen others were injured after police officials in Prague say a lone gunman opened fire in a university building there. Prague's police chief and the Czech Republic's interior ministry say the gunman is among the dead. Authorities have not released the identity of the gunman, but say he was a student at Charles University where that shooting took place. Stocks rebounded today. The Dow up 322 points. This is NPR. Rudy Giuliani has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in New York after a jury determined he must pay nearly $150 million for defaming two former Georgia election workers. In the filing, Giuliani lists his assets to be worth between $1 and $10 million. He estimates his liabilities at between $100 and $500 million. The filing comes a day after a federal judge ruled Giuliani must immediately pay Wandra Shea Moss and her mother, Ruby Freeman, for spreading baseless claims about their involvement in election fraud. Giuliani, a former Trump campaign attorney and former New York mayor, had called the jury's defamation award absurd. With Christmas just days away, the U.S. is now in the thick of a busy holiday travel time. Remember station WBEZ, David Shaper reports air travelers should prepare for long lines and full planes. 39 million people are expected to fly this holiday season through January 2nd. That's an increase of 16% over last year, according to the group Airlines for America. 
which says its member airlines are prepared for the holiday rush. Airlines have been hiring aggressively to make sure they have enough pilots, flight attendants, gate agents, and other employees to meet the surge in holiday travel demand. They've also been adjusting their schedules and upgrading their technology to minimize flight delays and cancellations. Southwest, in particular, says it is much better prepared this year than last, when snowstorms followed by systems failures forced it to cancel nearly 17,000 flights, disrupting holiday travel for about 2 million people. For NPR News, I'm David Shaper in Chicago. Oil closed lower, down 33 cents a barrel to 73.89 a barrel. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington. I'm Lisa Mullins. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Harvard's President Claudine Gay is facing allegations of academic dishonesty. Many of Gay's critics are already unhappy over her response to pro-Palestinian protests on campus. They say she should resign. But as WBUR's Max Larkin reports, others say that's not the university's standard practice. Between 2017 and 2022, Harvard punished around two dozen students for academic misconduct each year, but none were expelled. University officials say Gay missed quotation marks or citations, what they call honest errors and not research misconduct. As an education lawyer, Ruth O'Mara Costello says Gay's case is not unusual. Harvard's had a number of faculty have this happen very publicly over the years. It does happen, um, and... Harvard's general practice hasn't seemed to be that they end people's careers over it. U.S. House Republican leaders have said the university is applying a double standard to keep Gay in her job. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. The Massachusetts Fiscal Alliance is calling on the governor and the legislature to approve broad-based tax cuts, especially in light of the recently implemented millionaire surtax. The fiscally conservative alliance's Paul Craney says Massachusetts has to remain economically competitive with other states. Their main competition is Florida and Hampshire, and they don't have a lot of these taxes. So we are competing with Florida and Hampshire, and that's what we have to always remember. That's our um, main opposition. A report by the tax policy nonprofit, the Tax Foundation, finds Massachusetts has one of the worst business climates in the country. The MBTA's Green Lines D branch is back up and running now with almost no speed restrictions between Riverside and Kenmore. The line reopened today after 10 days of repairs. MBTA General Manager Phil Ang tells WBUR's Radio Boston that crews repaired six miles of track and lifted 22 speed restrictions. In fact, we started out with uh, 20 and we accomplished two additional that we encountered as we were doing the work. We also took care of some additional state of good repair. We did some station work. We did some catenary work. The overhead power lines that that, um, support the propulsion of the trains. Starting next month, the T plans to perform additional track work to lift speed restrictions, which now affect 16% of the track system. And the state is about to open an evening and overnight shelter for families eligible for emergency assistance. The shelter opening tomorrow will be at the old courthouse on Cambridge Street in Cambridge. The space will be able to accommodate as many as 70 families with cots and limited amenities. The building is nearly empty, but still houses the Registry of Deeds. Better bundle up tonight. Should be down around 20 degrees overnight. A nice sunny day tomorrow, again in the mid-30s. Saturday, clouds and sunshine both, inching up to the low 40s. Sunday, generally cloudy, again in the mid-40s. It is 30 degrees now in Boston at 6.09. WBUR supporters include Carla Itzkovich, whose gift, in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. When it comes to reproductive rights, 2023 is ending in much the same way it began, with confusion, lawsuits, and the stories of women in the midst of health crises unable to access abortion care because of a host of restrictive abortion laws across the country. The most recent example of this is Kate Cox, a 31-year-old mother of two in Texas. That state has some of the most restrictive abortion laws in the country. At around 20 weeks, Cox learned the fetus she was carrying had trisomy 18, a condition where the fetus often dies before birth or just after. Cox was having complications with the pregnancy and continuing to carry the fetus could jeopardize her future fertility. Along with the Center for Reproductive Rights, Cox petitioned a Texas court for a medical exception for an abortion. The request was granted but later overturned when the state's attorney general, Ken Paxton, appealed the ruling to the state Supreme Court. With time running out, Cox left Texas to seek an abortion in another state. While this past year saw a number of states move to protect abortion rights, Cox's story is far from unique. We're going to talk through the state of reproductive rights in this country with NPR national political correspondent Sarah McCammon and NPR health policy reporter Selena Simmons-Duffin. And Sarah, I want to start with you here and a big picture look. What has been happening this year in terms of the legal landscape? Well, you know, this was the first full year without Roe v. Wade after the Dobbs decision was issued in June of 2022. And since then, we've seen continued fights in state legislatures, in courtrooms, and at the ballot box over abortion rights and abortion policy. So currently, according to the Guttmacher Institute, which supports abortion rights, 14 states have total or near-total abortion bans, seven more prohibit abortion sometime before 18 weeks. And at the same time, 22 states and the District of Columbia have passed protections this year for abortion access. So there's really been an intensification of this divide we see where access depends on where you live. Also, more patients have been coming forward with stories about being turned away for emergency abortion care. Some of them are fighting back by filing lawsuits. And because of all this, we're seeing continued political fallout. Selena, to you, we know that people are still getting abortions, and there is data that suggests that the number of abortions actually rose in 2023. Explain how that can be the case when so many states have moved to limit access. Yeah, it's a really surprising finding. There are some theories as to why. So there may be an increased demand for abortion because of the economy. It could be because of reduced stigma as more people talk about their experiences with miscarriage and abortion. There's also way more information out there about what state laws are and different options for ending a pregnancy. So in states with bans, people who are seeking abortions and have the money to do this are just traveling to states where it's legal. One study found that birth rates increased in states with abortion bans since these new laws took effect. Selena, remind us who's being impacted the most by all of this. The real demographic differences in terms of access are financial. Who can afford to travel and who can't? And because of the racial wealth differentials in the U.S., that means low-income people of color are the most likely to be stuck. As an example, I spoke with Samantha Cassiano last spring. She didn't have the money to leave the state of Texas when she was pregnant with a fetus that had an encephaly. That's a condition where the brain and skull do not fully form. It's always fatal. She had to carry that pregnancy to term and give birth, and her baby died soon after that. She's now a plaintiff in a lawsuit arguing that the Texas abortion ban exception for medical reasons is too narrow and that that harmed her. 
Sarah, to you, what has the response to these stories been like? You know, it's important to understand that poll after poll suggests that most Americans support at least some legal access to abortion, particularly in situations like the ones we've been talking about where there's an emergency medical crisis and and abortion is the recommended standard of care. So abortion rights opponents who have supported these laws have had varying responses. You know, some have suggested that Kate Cox, who we heard about earlier, should carry the pregnancy to term and give birth regardless of how it might affect her future fertility. There are activists who are committed to that idea. But just as often, if not more often, I've heard Republican politicians downplay the idea that these laws are meant to prevent abortions in these cases. Earlier this year, I interviewed the architect of one of these laws, Texas Law SB8, which first took effect in September 2021. This is the one that allows civil lawsuits against anyone believed to have been involved in providing or helping someone get an illegal abortion, and it banned most abortions after about six weeks. So Jonathan Mitchell is a lawyer based in Austin who helped Republican lawmakers draft that legislation. I asked him about one specific case in Texas involving a woman named Anna Zargarian. She's one of the plaintiffs in the Center for Reproductive Rights case that we've been talking about. She had to fly to Colorado for an emergency abortion after her water broke prematurely. So I asked Jonathan Mitchell, the architect of this law, what he thought about that. But I do have a hard time understanding why SBA would have stopped medically necessary abortions because the statute specifically allows them at any point in the pregnancy and it specifically exempts those abortions from any type of liability, civil or criminal. Does it concern you that this happens? It concerns me, yeah, because the statute was never intended to restrict access to medically necessary abortions. Only the purely elective abortions are unlawful under SBA. But as we've heard, that is not what's happening. Many doctors have told both Selena and me that they don't feel like they're able to terminate pregnancies, even when there's an emergency and the standard of care established by the medical community would suggest that they should. They're worried about prosecution and and other repercussions. Selena, what else have you been hearing from doctors? Well, they really feel like they're in an impossible situation, especially when it comes to complications. So you have the threat of prosecution by the state if you provide an abortion that someone deems doesn't fall into the medical exception. You also have the threat of malpractice suits if you deny an abortion and someone gets really sick or dies as a result. Sarah, how has the overturning of Roe reshaped political conversations about abortion? Well, we've now had two elections in 2022 and 23 where voters have had a chance to weigh in since the Dobbs decision. Several states had ballot initiatives that spoke to questions related to abortion rights. And in every case where the question was put directly to voters, voters supported abortion rights in one way or another. So, Sarah, we have at this point been talking about elections in the past, but we are headed into a monumental election year in 2024. The primary is already underway. What are you seeing and hearing? You know, Republicans are looking at these election results and seeing voters appear to push back against abortion restrictions, often even in pretty red states. So this is a challenge for uh, particularly for Republican presidential hopefuls who are trying to navigate that. They're trying to appeal to a base that's strongly anti-abortion, but also they have to be mindful of what they're saying and, and not turn off general election voters. So we've seen them try to sort of walk that line. Several of them have told personal stories about experiences in their families with miscarriages or difficulty conceiving. 
what that seems like is an effort by the candidates to humanize themselves and seem more relatable on this issue. All of these candidates generally support the overturning of Roe v. Wade. The question is just how restrictive should laws be and should they support a national abortion ban if hypothetically, and it's very hypothetical, Republicans would ever get enough votes in Congress to do that. Selena, the other big thing that we're watching next year on this front is that the Supreme Court has agreed to take up another case about abortion, this one involving the abortion pill. Right. So this is a case brought by doctors who oppose abortion rights, who say the FDA didn't use the right procedures when it loosened access to a drug called mifepristone. And the shakiest part of this case is whether they have the right to sue. But even so, many academics believe that this impact of this decision could be really, really, really big. And that's because most of the abortions in the U.S. happen as medication abortions, which involve mifepristone and another drug called misoprostol. So a decision that limits access to mifepristone could have national impact, including for people living in New York and California and Colorado and other states that have positioned themselves as bastions of reproductive rights. We haven't heard oral arguments. We don't know what the justices are thinking, but this is the same court that overturned Roe v. Wade, and the decision could come just months before the election. So it's going to be a huge story in the coming year. NPR's Selena Semenstaffen and Sarah McCammon, thanks to both of you. You're welcome. Thank you. The United States is known for its incredible collection of national parks, right? Crystal clear lakes, sprawling forests, and rolling mountains. But You know, that's not everyone's cup of tea. So where do unimpressed visitors take their complaints? The Internet's a beautiful thing. It's a great place for people to complain about things that you wouldn't think needed to be complained about. Graham Avril is the National Parks columnist for Outside Magazine. And we thought it would be really funny to do a roundup of the best, worst reviews of national parks. His favorite comes from a Yelp reviewer about Hawaii Volcanoes National Park. Absolutely horrible disappointment. There wasn't a single pickleball court in sight. (laughs) A pickleball court? Really? (laughs) I mean, not something I would expect to see at a national park, but this reviewer got pretty insistent. I hope my $30 entrance fee goes towards breaking ground on pickleball courts in the immediate future. Well, some of us here at NPR wanted to get in on the fun, so we asked our staff to read some of our favorite reviews. Uh Uh-huh. Like this one comes from an unhappy visitor to Yosemite National Park here in California. I need someone to explain to me the hype of this place. This place looks like any place with mountains and trees. Too many people, not enough stores, not enough places to buy food. Stay in the shopping mall! (laughs) All right, how about this review of Arches National Park in Utah? Having to pay a $2 timed entry to a national park is ridiculous, even if we have a yearly pass. Government sucks. Sounds like someone needs some nature therapy. All right, one more, Ari. This one is about Montana's Glacier National Park. Where are the glaciers? It was so disappointing to stand at lookouts with glaciers in the distance and signage showing glaciers 50 years ago near where I was standing. Ouch. All right, let's give the last line to a reviewer who was not a big fan of Yellowstone National Park. The whole place smelled like farts. Elsa, I'm making that my ringtone. (laughs) 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR coming up in business news starting at 6.30. Christmas is rapidly approaching and companies are pushing to offer their goods with next day or same day shipping. That may be the norm now, but is the practice sustainable for retailers? Marketplace starts in about 10 minutes. Stocks grabbed a good amount of ground today. The Dow rose nearly nine-tenths of a percent. S&P rebounded from its worst day since September. It rose a full percent. The Nasdaq grew by one and a quarter percent. Santander Bank now has a 20 percent stake in $9 billion worth of multifamily real estate loans that once belonged to Signature Bank. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation awarded the share yesterday. Santander's U.S. operations are based in Boston. Signature of New York collapsed in March. It was the fourth largest bank failure in U.S. history. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lake Champlain Chocolates. Celebrating the season with organic fair trade chocolates at local specialty food stores and at lakechamplainchocolates.com. I'm Scott Simon. Are you thinking about trading in your car? Why not donate it to this station instead? We'll turn it into the programs you love. Just go to WBUR.org. Come to City Space on Thursday, January 4th for a conversation about redefining wellness with Dr. Pooja Lakshman, author of Real Self-Care. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. Overnight tonight, cold, down to about 20 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny again, back up around 35 degrees again. Then for the weekend, clouds and sunshine both on Saturday, rising to the mid-40s. The mid-40s on Sunday, a cloudy day. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science, mathworks.com MOS. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you've got a craving for some of the most authentic Italian food in Boston, you go to the North End. If it's got to be a piece of genuine Italian pastry, you get a cannoli and sink your teeth into all of its crunchy and creamy yumminess. That's a holy cannoli moment. Bobby Agrippino has introduced lots of people to the cannoli. He's lived in the North End his whole life and runs food tours here. There was about 12 pastry shops in the neighborhood at one time. You know, they all had the cannoli. Now it's down to just a handful. As part of WBUR's Field Guide to Boston, we went to find out what goes into making cannolis at the North End's most venerated bakeries. They're all run by the immigrant families that founded them. There's Modern Pastry on Hanover Street. It opened more than 90 years ago. And just down Hanover is Mike's Pastry. It's been serving up cannolis and other Italian pastries for 77 years. Around the corner on Salem Street, there's Bova's Bakery. The overnight baker is a fourth generation Bova. So I'm Jojo, my dad is Joe, his father was Big Joe, my cousin Joey, my cousin Joe. Jojo Bova's great-grandfather opened the bakery in 1926. The place is just the way Jojo remembers it as a kid more than 30 years ago. When I was four and five, I was rolling braids and, and hamburger buns out there on a milk crate. The place is decidedly not fancy. White paper signs written in black Sharpie identify the pastries in the display cases. A slice of Boston cream pie, chocolate brick, and anything else? I think that's everything. The shop is open 24 hours a day and doesn't quiet down until about 3 a.m. So Jojo Bova's got to keep the cases full. Every night he scans them to see what he needs to make that night. Almond biscotti, pistachio macaroons, probably some more raspberry arugula. And of course, cannolis. 
In the old days, bovis filled the shells with only ricotta or Bavarian cream. These days, take your pick. Creme brulee, Nutella, salted caramel, Oreo, cappuccino, peanut butter, pistachio. Would your ancestors turn up their nose at like cappuccino cannolis? No. No, if they seen how much money we were making, no way. Tonight, Bob is going to make the cannoli that's the specialty of the house. He takes us into the kitchen. So this oven is original here. It's been here since uh, 1930, 1940. He heads to a wood baker's workbench in the way back. He unlocks his toolbox, pulls out just the right knife, and starts to make Florentine cannolis. The shells are like a Florentine cookie, all delicate and lacy. Bova cuts precise chunks of dough and pummels each one with his palm to make a patty. It's a、uh, basically almond brittle. It's sugar, honey, almonds, cream, and butter. How much butter is in each cannoli shell, roughly? I'm not sure. I want to know, but tell me. It's a lot of butter. Yeah, it's, it's all but it. It is hard.、Yeah. You're really pounding on it.、Yeah. It may be tedious, but it's it's my life. It's a point of pride. Yeah. For you. Yeah. It's nice. He slides a tray of patties into a 400 degree oven. Watch out! It might be hot. Okay. A few minutes later, the patties are just pliable enough to peel off the pan. Bova picks up an essential cannoli tool, a wooden peg that's about five or six inches long. He wraps a Florentine wafer around each peg to form the perfect shell. Bova fills the shells with sweet ricotta cheese, and then he'll do it all over again. It's hard to keep up with demand. I made 425 on Friday, and they were gone by Saturday night. I had to make another 300, and they sold by Sunday night. Customers appreciate that dedication and a good cannoli. Stevie Davis from Back Bay says she's sampled them all. I think Bova's is the best. The flavor—I don't know what it is—but it just tasted really good. I had the creme brulee one. I've had it multiple times now, and I've even been to Italy recently, and I still love Bova's. The connoisseurs have different cannoli criteria. Well, I'm going to talk to you from a non-Italian perspective. That Suman Prasad of Boston, in line at the iconic Mike's Pastry. I think the cannoli itself, if it's light and flaky, that's a good cannoli to me. You know, I don't like it super, super hard and dense. Her friend Cheryl Confer of Rentham says she's 100% Italian and sets a high bar for cannolis. A cannoli must have a high percentage of fat. We say ricotta, but other people say ricotta, and the shell must be. Really hard and never ever soggy, and therefore the cannoli must always be stuffed right in front of you and served immediately. Otherwise, eh, we don't want it. <laughs> Mike's pastry offers up 19 flavors. I'm gonna order a pistachio cannoli. A clerk takes the order, then rushes to the back room where a worker squeezes thick filling into a shell and coats the ends with pistachio crumbles. Then the clerk scoots back to the customer to offer a final touch. What about some powdered sugar? Absolutely. My name is Angelo. I'm、uh, the manager, the son of the owner at Mike's Pastry. Been here for over 40 years. Angelo Papa's stepfather was the late Mike Mercogliano, who founded the bakery. Mike's churns out 5,000 homemade cannoli shells a week. In the kitchen, men in baseball hats and women in hairnets work at a long table. 
Their aprons are white with flower dust. Uh, that's one person there, two, three, four, five, that are on the process of rolling out the dough. The dough's wrapped around wood pegs to form the shells, and then it's time to cook them. This would be the frying section. I just made that up. A baker drops a tray of 50 shells into the big fryer. Papa says he takes pride in doing things just as his stepdad did. If not the flair of the store or the personnel of the store, but the way we make the stuff. I can't say what makes mine special. I mean, I only do it the way Mike taught me how to do it. And if people buy it, great. If they like it, great. It seems to be working out for us, so I think we'll continue on. Music to the ears of cannoli lovers. Pistachio cannoli, all right. Let's do it. You'll find more stories about the neighborhoods, history, and culture of Boston, including where to find great food, in WBUR's Field Guide to Boston. That's at wbur.org slash fieldguide. WBUR supporters include Endless Energy, ensuring homes are winter-ready with a natural gas or air source HVAC system diagnostic check. GoEndlessEnergy.com.